Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Oi, Mark. Oi. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? You've got me doing it now, and I don't like that. Just because I've been away for a while doesn't mean I'm going to do that. Yeah, no, that wasn't very good, actually. You should just be me. Yeah. Don't encroach. Back off. What, back in goal, goalie. <laughs> Where the, which which film does that come from? Oi, goalie, back in goal. There can't be that many. I, does, can't, I can't remember. I since we're not on air, people can't immediately text in, but I'm sure that for... Oh, I'll tell you what I have to do. Hang on, it doesn't sound like a great line because of the repetition of goal and goalie, which sounds a little bit clumsy. Yeah. It, I, it's it's some crim movie. Is it? Know. I think so, yeah. What were you going to tell me? I was going to say... Did you so, have a nice two weeks, by the way? Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. It was really nice. Anyone Thank who you. follows you on social media knows exactly where you They felt they were there with me, don't they? You've <laughs> been very, very highfalutin in all highfalutin places. And I've been taking photographs of everything. And I, I, I met up with Jason, who sends his uh, love, because he's out in uh, New York doing some television programme, and I asked him what it was about. He said he could only tell me, but then he'd have to kill me. And uh, John Ronson, who said, say hello to you, um, because obviously uh, we're both big fans of uh, Frank and of, uh, of John's books. And, and that I was, photograph that you, you put out on social media, yeah, you and John, a whole bunch of people said it just looked like me. <laughs> and in fact, the little icon that he has of himself on his book. I know, it does look exactly. I think he's basing himself on. He is. He's living a life that is based on your life. That's what he said to me. He said, when... He's a when, fraud. It's, a, it's official. But before that, I was in Atlanta because it was a Society of Cinema and Media Studies conference, which was great. And it was fantastic. And there was loads and loads of papers. You would have loved it, right? Because there was a paper about exploitation cinema, which was great. Had a right. whole, yeah, fun. But the best one was there was a panel about cruising, you know, William Freakin's cruising. I saw you discussing this. This was just, it was great. It was, re- it was, no, it was really terrific because cruising is one of those movies that even after all this time can still provoke the proverbial heated debate. And it was it was just great to be in. It was packed. the room was packed. I mean, it was absolutely packed. And uh, you know, people still even now talking very passionately and very sort of about that about you know. And is it about where where we should be going on the cruise? Is that where it it's, is? It's, that's what it was about? Yeah, cruising. It's about itinerary. boats. That's exactly what it's about. We have to go to South Korea, by the way. We've got lots of people in South Korea. Have we? Yeah. Do we have any in North Korea? Well, according to the the map on the on the on the. App which has got nothing to do with us, yes, or the BBC. Which app None. is that? Is that no? no. Okay, the Eyewitter app. Yeah, I did. I took it off my phone the minute I found that we had nothing to do with it. I, do, I threw my phone in the Hudson River. Anyway, there are loads. <laughs> there are loads in South Korea and none in North Korea. And but let's be honest, if you were in North Korea listening to this, you wouldn't want to download the app, thus advertising the fact you're listening to capitalist Western. Propaganda. Propaganda filth, yeah. I was going to say before all of that started, but oh, yeah. thank you for asking me how my my uh, time off was. Did you have a nice time? You answer yes. You answer the, my answer is going to be way more dull than yours. Go on. Yes, thank you. Turn uh, I, and and we're back. Just tell me how you got on. What's your anecdote? No, no, it's not an anecdote. What I was going to say is the last time that we were on, and this came up because of talking about with the bit we're doing now is a podcast, right? So people yes. won't respond to it until the podcast is downloaded, right. which is about six o'clock. Six thirty, I'm on a train out of Waterloo, leaving London as fast as humanly possible, and then I start getting tweets from people who are listening to the podcast. So it's kind of like a delayed action mm-hmm. thing. And of course, the tweets that started coming in at six thirty last time we were on was that bit of music, you idiot, is not Super Tramp. It's the Tenio Morricone. Tenio Morricone. And of course... But it did sound like... No, 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 yeah, honestly. And it was one of those things in which it was like, 
that journey, you know, it just became more crushed as I, as you know, that, that terrible feeling, that sort of prickling feeling that you get when you suddenly realise, of course, that's what it is. Why was my brain saying super trap? Why is my mouth saying and super the trap? Problem, the problem with podding is, is that if you make a mistake on a radio programme, that's it, it's gone, and then people exactly complain. Mm-hmm. But the fact that people listen to this over many weeks, many, many weeks, later, yeah, yeah, every day, every, every day. Week. I got one just this morning saying, incidentally, loser, loser. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, of course. I mean, head hung duly in utter shame. It, it was, uh, of course, that's what it was. But it's one of those. I'm at the point in my life now, right? And if I hear something and it sounds vaguely familiar, I think I know that. And then my brain just scrabbles around for any piece of land for that to, you know, and it just happened. Super, and as it turned out, as we demonstrated, it didn't sound a million miles away from the beginning of School by Supertramp. Uh, they were probably copying. They were probably copying or even they were proto sampling. What is that? I just made it up. Okay, it's what they, you know, sampling before the, before the thing. You know, it's like on that Clash album when you suddenly get that advert for toilet cleaner. Apparently, brushing Shore Beats brushing. Yeah, apparently they definitely weren't copying or sampling or anything like that. There's a voice in your head just said, that. "Yes." Well, that's funny because we actually played the bit of the Super Tramp, and it did sound not. It was a totally different key and admittedly different notes. No, I know it was just a. It was a. It was. It was the the dictionary definition of a brain fart. Yes. The similarity is entirely coincidental and nothing to do with us. Oh, I see. You're saying that for a legal reason. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, I sorry. I didn't get that. But that was what it was. Beg your pardon. Okay, fine. Yes, it was a totally original composition by it, the Tramp. If Led Zeppelin could be taken to court, <laughs> you know, for a song that they did in 1971. When was this? In America. Have they, this week. Oh, so tell me. I've missed this. I've been, my Taurus. brain's been Taurus. The, the similarity between uh, Stairway to Heaven in the opening bars of Stairway to Heaven mm-hmm. and a dun, 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 dun. You mean it's that? a similar chord progression with a band that they toured with. But anyway, now, all these years later, it's going to court. No. So in other words, really, anything that we said about Supertramp, like one month later, is definitely going to court. So we just think Supertramp are great. Yes. Uh, love them in Magnolia. That was probably the best. That was Supertramp ever in a movie, and also the best use of Amy Man in a in a, yes. in a movie. F. Yeah, big fan of that. So absolutely. So Supertramp's thoroughly original composition. School. We are going on. Just that reminded me. Through. No, I know, but I, I feel like I need to do some sort of you know huge public mea culpa, and that's what I'm doing. Would you like a, a hair shirt? They're a support band. They're going to play with Trump. So love party. There is a definitely a love party going on in Tromso, but they're no longer the most northerly listeners because there's a place called Hammerfest, and which is a way, way north. The people in Hammerfest look down on the feeble southerners in Tromso <laughs> and go, it's not cold there, you should come to Hammerfest, where there should certainly be a festival of Hammer Mill. <laughs> I'm sure someone's thought of that. Pete from near uh, Bedford wants to... From uh, near Bedford. Near Bedford is what he said. That sounds like he's actually from Bedford, but he's like doing that thing about I'm writing on behalf of a friend. Dear Stop and Motion, it's not you, it's me. Being a VLTL of the podcast variety, harking back to the heady days of 2006 with reviews of Happy Feet and a scanner darkly. Insert Mark's anecdotal interruption here. Eh? Which was uh, the... What was my anecdotal interruption about a scanner darkly? Happy Feet. Anyway, being an... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm never more than one week behind on the podcast. You have sustained me during six years of super commuting into London and on many a long car journey. However, upon picking up my generic fruit-based device... That joke isn't funny anymore. This past weekend, to keep me cinematically informed during some laundrying, I found the talented Mr Ben Bailey-Smith and Mr Robbie Collin speaking of things about which I was unfamiliar. What is this eyewitter? Nothing to do. 
are there really any films where a canine character is pivotal to the plot? I was confused. In the words of the unnamed narrator from Fight Club, had I been asleep? <laughs> no, I had not. It must. You sounded, you sounded like Dougal at the beginning of Dougal and the Blue Cat. It must be the fault of my generic fruit-based device. Still, Still not funny. funny. So I started the proceeding. <laughs> Can I show you? Can I show you this either? It's actually had written in. Still, Still not, not funny. Still not funny. I'm finding it increasingly. Hang on, but can I just be clear about this? They didn't rule that it was not funny. What they ruled was was that it wasn't up to them to rule it was whether it was funny. It was a shrug. Don't ask me. So I started the preceding podcast, then the podcast that preceded the preceding podcast. Again and again, I started earlier podcasts until the horrifying realisation, Simon, Mark, I was more than a month behind. And for this, I'm truly sorry. I know you won't be cross. You'll just be disappointed. I couldn't understand how this had happened. Then it struck me. The genesis of my witter lapse, as it's being referred to <laughs> in neurological lapse. circles. <laughs> During your interview with Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Oh, Despite your obvious enthusiasm for the film and your insightful questions, Duke felt it necessary to explain that, and I quote, nothing actually moves in the movie, it's just a series of static images creating the illusion of movement. Wow, just just run it by me again. Just say that again. It's quite an animation insight. No, no, go on, go on. Nothing actually moves in the movie. It's just a series of static images creating the illusion of movement. You mean like all cinema ever? Kind of. Okay, cool. At this moment, I rolled my eyes and groaned with such severity that it seemingly caused a temporary and undiagnosed aversion to podcasts. The Cohen brothers, they were not. Sir Charles McChucklington Branner, (laughs) they were not either. Anyway, another show, Steve. Pete from near Edford. So many, many insights in that email. Thank you very much. Could be the email of the week, you never know. Except we haven't taken this into consideration. Dear Hattie Jakes and Kenneth Williams, this is from Mark Case. Oh, that was exactly. terrible. Was it? Which, which one of them was I doing? That wasn't, that that wasn't Hattie was, Jakes. Was it, it be. Mark Case, BSc in clinical nursing, scout knife and axe badge, level one recorder. I may be a little behind in the ongoing anaesthetist versus surgeons fracas. Yes. Due to multiple fruit-based phone failures. I'd like to point out it's not, it's not really a fracas. It's more of a frank exchange of views. Yes. Between unconscious people. That's the third reference to a fruit-based thing. Still not funny. So desperately playing catch-up on the way uh, to and from work. Now, you need to know I am a senior emergency nurse and also a a majors assisting practitioner, and I don't know what that means either. (laughs) I would like to take umbrage with Dr Jeremy Stone, who recently stated on your programme that not only are anaesthetists more fun than surgeons, but all other hospital workers. So I would like to raise two points. One, that despite being frequently verbally and sometimes physically abused, covered in other people's blood, urine and vomit, and here a line has been scored... But I'm going to read it out anyway oh, go on. on the grounds that if it's too horrible... Yeah, Robin just can just take bleed. it out. Go on. Including on one occasion having someone else's projectile vomit in my mouth. Sorry, Mark. Oh, that's fine. You, can, you can't take that out. That I am still that's able... Ab- that's absolutely fine. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that, that happens in a, in a movie which is generally regarded to be one of the top 25 movies, of, you know, not just by me, but by the American Film Institute and everything. That's fine. This isn't a film. This is real life. No, I know, but I'm saying that the reference is that that's absolutely fine. Read it again. That despite being frequently verbally and sometimes physically abused, covered in other people's blood, urine and vomit, including on one occasion having someone else's projectile vomit in my mouth, sorry Mark, (laughs) I am still able to have a joke and crack a smile. And point number two, speaking as a male nurse and a feminist, that everyone 
whose everyone knows that nurses hold the title as being the most, most fun, fun people yeah. of all hospital workers, both in and out of the hospital setting. Yeah. I mean, Florence Nightingale was cracking jokes to the injured and convalescing masses when anaesthetists were only knee-high and still mucking around with laughing gas. <laughs> I suspect that's a line Mark's used before. <laughs> I'll be speaking at a conference this year and we'll endeavour to say hello to Jason. Fantastic. Anyway, Mark, thank you very much. Fantastic. No, you, yeah, and you, you thank you very much. Pardon me? Why are you thanking me very much? You're Mark as well and he's Mark. No, I know, I understand that. But is he Mark with a K or Mark with a C? Because Mark with a C goes snock. He's Mark with a K and Case with a C. No, 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 it's... What? You know, I'm lies with, an, I'm lies with a Z, not lies with an S, because lies with an S goes not Z. You must know that. Yes, it's fine. It's just not really relevant. All right. Oh, so, fine. Sorry. When did it being relevant become a thing? You, the person who, in a trail that we were doing for this show, just went, why is it that radio shows are female? That was not... That was entirely appropriate because there'd been a little piece of information about Five Live Sports Extra being a sister station, and I thought we need to challenge that because there's a certain... Uh, assumption being made, and it's. Did you feel the masculinity was being challenged? I know what I think was. I wanted to mess up the last half hour of the sport because <laughs> they've got lots of text voting. You know, what do you think uh, about that Liverpool uh, last minute equal uh, uh, winning goal? Wasn't that extraordinary? Have you seen a better goal? Get in touch now, says George. Riley. I bet. I bet you couldn't. If you couldn't if, if we stopped doing this now and tuned into that program, it would all be about why it is that the, that it's a sister. You have probably totally derailed an otherwise very fine show. That's true. That's very true. It wouldn't be the first time. It would. Uh, anyway, enough of this. Is there ever Funny is there ever enough of this? Because the show beckons. Just the other. I'm side. really pleased to be back. That's very good. That's very good. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, I am really pleased. But I'm really. It's nice to see you again. Well, it's very nice to, very see, nice you. to see you too. Fine. Okay. Right. This is. Did you, did, you, did you listen in whilst we were away? You know, I did. They were good. That's why I don't listen. They weren't as good as you. They were better than me. No, but they weren't as none good of, as you. None of that is true. Why listen to people doing your job in case they're better or really rubbish? No, because it, because it was nice to hear. You were abroad and on holiday. Yeah, but it's the internet now. Listen to make... local radio. Oh, yeah, right, because listening to local radio in America is so easy. You, I can never do it. In America, all you can ever get is K-Rock, Rock Block. Every time I go to America, it's K-Rock, Rock Block. I've got a Rocktober Rock Block by some jock who just literally all they do is play Hotel California. Like over and over and over. You can go from station to station to station and it'll be Hotel California or Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf. Do they play anything from station to station? No. Which is but a, that would have, been, it would have been a very good thing. Anyway, yeah. okay. should we start the show? If we absolutely must. How nice it is to see your well-quaffed, quiffed head. I got caught in the rain. Well, yes, but also that's a super mean haircut that you've had. Oh, thank you very much. now enjoy on the live streaming via the five lights. But it's website. probably I can't see it at the moment. It's probably more flattened than normal because of the fact that I got caught in the rain. I was I was reenacting um singing in the rain. Um what are you gonna do on this show then? Who what are you gonna review? Uh <laughs> shall we go straight into this, are we? Uh we're going to be reviewing Criminal, we're going to be reviewing Fan, we're going to be reviewing Eye in the Sky, and we're going to be reviewing the Jungle Book, uh for which you have been speaking to The director John Favreau. John Favreau. Um, and lots to discuss around uh, a lot of those movies. You can get involved, of course. The email is mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can text 85058 and you can watch the live stream and you can tweet us at Wittertainment. I think that's pretty much everything. We're not periscoping this week. or We haven't periscoped for ages. No, we did do it. That was quite fun. And we streamed on Facebook. We but haven't then, done that for a while. No, but the periscoping thing, didn't, didn't Simon give up? Didn't he just sort of get a bit... Member of the production team. Yes, yeah. 
I think he had other things. Yes, as opposed to you. I know that you gave up long ago. Kevin Evans in Derby has been on. While we've been How is he? He's doing okay. Good to hear from him. Cast your minds back, he says, to the heady days of 2014. Yes. 25th of April, to be precise. Yes. Mark and Simon had a difference of opinion about Johnny Depp's latest film. The film was Wally Fister's Transcendent. Ah! Which had oh, not, yes. not been well received by critics. No, except for, except for me. Mark quite liked it, hmm. despite its, quote, cronkiness and clunkiness. Yeah. Simon, however, thought it was dumb and stupid. After much debate, Mark made Simon a bet that in two years' time the film would have been largely reassessed and Simon thought not. So now, two years on, who has won the bet? Did we see an early glimpse of Mark's fortune-telling abilities or did it turn out to be Zardoz after all? P.S. I really, yes, I really have had a two-year reminder set on my fruit-based device to send this email in. By the way, that's... Wow, that's... <laughs> First of all, that's not funny anymore, that joke. No, it, if it was, if it ever was. But amazingly... But luckily, that fancy, doesn't matter. Fancy putting on a two-year reminder. I know. I didn't know you could do that. I mean, two years to email the Have program. you ever managed to hold on to a device for two years? I mean, no. generally, I break them once every sort of three months. Anyway, who won the bet? I mean, has Transcendence now been... Re- what did I say? That in, t- that in two years' time, Transcendence was going to be... Largely reassessed. Well, I don't think it has been reassessed, has it? Um, well... There, there, there was a, there was a. <laughs> when it came out on on DVD, yeah, yeah. There, there was a, You did sound like Fenella Fielding out of Dougal and the Blue Cat. Then, yeah. yes. Uh, when it came out on DVD, there were people who said this is nothing like um, as bad as people said when it was in cinemas. However, since then, people have, I think, largely um, forgotten it. Yeah, I'm just looking this up. It has a. Hmm. Oh, yes. Well. Yes. Uh, okay. So all you need to do, Mark, is to say it hasn't really been reassessed. It's still very happening. Much. It's. It is. No. I mean, I don't. I don't need to reassess it. I like it, and uh, there are other people. You said in two years' time. Yes, it would largely have been reassessed. Yes. And I'm just saying to you that maybe it hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened. No, hasn't happened. Hasn't happened yet. I'm so, going to set a reminder for for two years' time. Yes. To come back and discuss this in a minute. Okay. All right. Okay. By which point it will have been largely reassessed, or if, if not totally forgotten. Yeah, but that's the thing: is totally forgetting something. Does that count as largely reassessing it? No, I think the process of reassessment means that it's that's an active thing. You actually have to look at it and reassess it. But maybe it's that the people were just actively prejudiced against it two years ago, and now they're not. So that you know, Mark, stop. You stopped. Before we do the box office top ten, uh, we're going to update ourselves with the Reverend Canon Malcolm Round from St Mungo's Church, Belerno in Edinburgh. Fantastic. I am wondering, Mark and Simon, whether any of your other correspondents have experienced unexpected post-wittertainment fame. Your flagship <laughs> programme is clearly listened to by other journalists, as within hours of you reading out my last email about the fact that it was not only my leap year, leap year, yes. birthday, but also that of my older sister and my daughter, and your comments about the mathematical probability of such a coincidence. Yeah, which was very, it must be very, very... Small possibility. Reporters from a national newspaper picked up on the story. No. I realise that you're contractually obliged to mention The Guardian every week, but are you allowed to mention The Sun? Well, if that's what the story involves, then yes, of course. One such reporter turned up at St Mungo's Church looking for me, which I think unsettled my staff, as normally when a reporter from The Sun turns up chasing a clergyman, it's It's not not good good news. Especially especially as they knew at that moment I was in Las Vegas to celebrate my 60th birthday. Although, because it's a leap year, but it's my, actually my 15th. Right, yeah. All these things could have... We caused all of this. 
What had I done to get a tabloid journalist on my trail? Anyway, emails were exchanged, which led to the slightly surreal experience of being interviewed by phone whilst in a lift in Vegas, ending in an article in the February the 29th edition of The Sun about the three billion to one shot chance of three relatives sharing February the 29th as a birthday. And the headline was Leap of Faith which also happens to be an excellent film with Steve Martin. Very good. They kept their promise by not putting me on page three or near any scantily clad young ladies. In fact, my picture was beneath an article about Richard Gere. So <laughs> thanks to you, I can truthfully say I've been pictured with Richard Gere in a national newspaper. Very good. I was so, trying to yeah. find this piece on the... Well, I can't immediately find it, just bringing in a leap of faith, but I'm sure it'll be there. So, well, it just goes to show that loose talk... You know, can get you in the papers. Can get you in the papers. So the box office top ten... Yes. This week, are you ready to go now? You haven't seen some so, of these because you've been away. Yes, I've, actually, I've only seen one thing since I've been away. So. Drinking cocktails with showbiz celebrities. Jason says hi. Thanks. Uh, at number ten, Hardcore Henry. So no idea. I've seen the posters, but nothing else. So Peter Spack in. in Bournemouth. He's seen it. I'm writing to you as a proud member of the target demographic of Hardcore Henry. In Which other is... words, I am between eighteen and twenty-five, and I play video games. Do you remember being between eighteen and twenty-five? Well, it was just last year, a couple of years back. Oh. Yeah. If this film was to be described in one word, it would be insane. Non-stop, incredibly bloody action, funny one-liners, brilliant Shalto Copley, fast adrenaline-filled pace, a villain who can actually speak Russian and has a natural Russian accent, not a Hollywood one. It is, however, not without faults. The fast-moving and jumping and swaying camera could easily make someone with a less steady stomach run out of the cinema. Thankfully, this did not happen in our screening. Also, there is Gore Galore. I was sceptical when... Gore Galore? Gore Galore. Isn't she in Batman vs Superman? I was sceptical when I saw the 18 rating because, well, Deadpool's got a 15. But the BBFC did not make a mistake. This is an 18-plus film. In conclusion, Hardcore Henry is a great, violent, action-packed film which asks the audience to put their brains on the shelf when entering the cinema and enjoy the ride. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Chris Wheeler... Uh, I'm an LTL and an FTE, but felt the need to write in about my latest visit uh, to the world of cine. This time I decided to go on a solo voyage to see Hardcore Henry. Not knowing anything about the film other than the poster, which looked like that of an 80s cassette tape-based computer game I might have played on a ZX Spectrum or Acorn Electron. Are you with this? <laughs> no. I mean, I know what they are, but I've never played... It became apparent very quickly that this was going to be an hour and a half of first-person perspective action madness, not unlike watching someone else play a computer game who won't let you have a go. Oh. Now, don't get me wrong, this is no masterpiece. The paper-thin plot and unrelenting... Hey, which is, don't get me wrong, this is no masterpiece. How was I assuming that it was a masterpiece after the previous sentence? The previous sentence was, it's like watching a computer game played by somebody else who won't let you have a go. Anyway, Chris says... It's like saying... It was really boring and silly. Don't get me wrong, it's not a masterpiece. I can't quite explain it. My brain is telling me this is trash cinema, but the small child in me was gripped. Mindless cinema fun. OK, cool. Uh, Steve Hughes from our Facebook page, I walked out of Hardcore Henry. It's a YouTube clip, not a movie, and a terrible one at that. Thanks. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. London Has Fallen. Is it? Have an Why don't you have an opinion about Hardcore Henry? Just guess at your opinion. Uh, no. OK. Think you should no because that's that's like a fundamental rule of yeah no. Uh, London has fallen is hanging on at number nine. Mm -hmm. It's rubbish and and it's loud obnoxious rubbish at that. Of the two films that came out a couple of years ago, you know, Olympus has fallen and White House down. That this is the one that should get a sequel is really great. I mean, it is really really stupid and boring and shouty and as many people have pointed out, you know, offensive. Or at least it would be 
if you could take it seriously enough to be offended. I think the only reason I wasn't particularly offended by it was I just thought it's just like having a drunk person shouting at you in a pub. Uh, at number eight is 10 Cloverfield Lane. The difficulty with 10 Cloverfield Lane is that people sort of tie themselves up in knots in, uh, trying to describe what it is without giving away what it might become. I think the best way of... Uh, the best way of summing it up is to say it is actually a movie very much like The Disappearance of Alice Creed with three people in a confined space, all of whose allegiances you are unsure about. And all you know is that they're there because John Goodman insists that some cataclysmic event has happened and therefore they cannot leave. You don't need to know any more than that, except that it's a really well-played drama. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winston is terrific. Um, I thought it you know, did a really good job of balancing its character sympathies, the way in which each character reveals different sides of their personality as the as the plot starts to unravel. Uh, and the only thing I'd say is, don't go in expecting Cloverfield. Uh, is the title a spoiler? Originally, when the when the film was first, well, when the script was first written, it was called Cellar, and C, you know, with an E, Cellar. Mm. Not like it's like der rat keller. Not literally a cellar of rats. You're not getting that joke, are you? It's it's called cellar. It's a ruffles joke. Um, yes, cellar, which may have been a, a better title for it. But they, but I understand calling it ten Cloverfield Lane and saying that it's a blood relative of Cloverfield. They almost get away with it. Uh, number seven is my big fat Greek wedding too. <laughs> number six is midnight special. Again, this is another one of those. Difficult to talk about. And in fact, I was I, I was listening to the show and was very impressed with the, the, the way in which it was handled by our stand-in. So uh, a very, in, very interesting and sort of adventurous, gripping B-movie. Young kid wearing goggles uh, on the road with Michael Shannon. Uh, strange cults, never quite at the beginning playing its hand. What, where, why is he going? What, why, is, why are people following after him? Who's on his side? What, where exactly is this story going to? And again, I don't want to say, I know you've got some correspondence mm-hmm. about it, which I did actually sort of pre-vet just to make sure it doesn't give anything away. But it is one of those movies that keeps you guessing. And I like, I, I did like, I mean, I, I think Jeff Nichols is a very interesting director. And I, and I went with it. It has a kind of B-movie aesthetic to some extent, which I like very much. What but, is a B-movie aesthetic? Well, it's funny because people have used the phrase B-movie, they've also used the phrase Spielbergian. You always think of Spielberg as being about as A-list as you can get, but actually all the way through Spielberg's movies, there is a B-movie, so meaning, meaning it has a... I'm, I'm trying really hard not to... So there's a... B-movies means like the enjoyment of genre fiction, um, you, you know, uh, an attraction to uh, sort of... Not sensationalist. OK, I don't want... I, I'm not going to say, I, I'm so tying myself up in that. Okay, basically, yes. it's a really well-played, really interesting, intriguing drama that keeps you guessing. And if you've seen the trailer, you probably already know more than I would like people to have known about it. Right, uh, so this is the censored email. Yeah, it's been... only slightly censored. Uh, James Adamson. I took advantage of a free screening to go and see Midnight Special on the strength of an interesting premise and enjoying the director's previous film. Yeah. First, I enjoyed his nice and uh, and uh, give me shelter. Which you liked to uh, take shelter, didn't you? You liked that very much. That was Michael Shannon. Yeah, that's that right. One. Yeah, he was uh, he was fun. He was fun. He can come back on the show anytime. At first, I enjoyed its nice setup and good central performances and the pleasures of proper filmmaking virtues as an antidote to the appalling BVS dodge. 
Oh, yeah, OK, fine. I'm also, I was also enjoying the subtle inflections of John Carpenter here and there. Unfortunately, as the story progressed, it seemed just to head in the wrong direction towards an ending that let the whole film down. After a build-up where the boy's nature and protagonist's motives are unclear and oblique, the, play- yeah. the payoff... Mm-hmm. And revealed... Mm-hmm. Deflating the tension and abruptly dropping most of what had gone before. Um, is that okay? Uh, yeah, I disagree, but, but, but well done for doing the... Thank mm-hmm. you. I can do that better than most. Mm-hmm. Harry Mitchell uh, from Bristol uh, on Midnight Special saw it last night. I've been looking forward to this film. Actually, he says, I've been looking forward to it for moths. <laughs> but let's imagine... It's got it. great moths in it. I'm a big fan of Mud and Take Shelter and later being a really... Uh, uh, and la- the latter being a really great film. And I have to say, I enjoyed Midnight Special, but it was more an appreciation of the aesthetic than the story itself. Okay. I love the Carpenter-esque feel. I love the second ep- time somebody's brought that up, and I uh, yes, I, I think that is a perfectly reasonable. Um, is Carpenter-esque similar to B movie? Y- yes, funnily enough, actually there yeah there, there is even even when it's a what we now think of as an A, but yes, exactly. That's I, that's what I should have said. In fact, Carpenter. I love the opening five minutes and the way the title appeared on the screen. The music was brilliant. Hmm. Hmm. And I love the low-key B-movie feel. Oh, there you go. He's done it again at the end. Uh, one more. Patrick Innes Finchley. What a film. Too early to talk Oscars, but step forward. Michael Shannon, the best of some incredible performances. Dunst, Kylo Ren, and credit to Adam Driver for making me forget this by the end of the movie. But I have to, in the case of Michael Shannon, you know, it's it's not what you think of as the sort of classic Michael Shannon performance. It's a, I think it's, you know, it's... It, although, actually, have you ever seen... Have you seen Bug? Because uh, apparently Bug's being done on stage in London now, um, but Bug, the, the freaking film, which in which Shannon is in, which he's which he's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, you should see that you'd love it. Patrick and his face would just it, says but... a masterclass in how to tell a story with minimum script. Shannon's face is like a plasticine piece you can mould into a million expressions. Suspenseful on the edge of your seat, mystery thriller, weird, spooky. About three quarters in, I started to worry the movie had built itself up to be so good that it would never deliver an ending to match. But it did. Mm. It did. Yeah, good. Leaving me with a billion questions, but also leaving me utter, utterly satisfied. Good. Thank you, Patrick, in East Finchley. Uh, that's Midnight Special number six. Kung Fu Panda 3 is a five. Kind of colourful and, you know, kind of fun. For me, I have to say somewhat forgettable, but it's clearly struck a nerve. There are certainly things in it in which you can just take delight in the, you know, in the sort of the strange, fantastical, otherworldly landscapes and it's kind of goofy fun, but it's, it, I, I don't remember much about it other than thinking on a visual level it was kind of arresting. Uh, Eddie the Eagles, at number four. No, I haven't seen that. OK, here's some thoughts from Lucy Thompson, who's in Bristol. Uh, right, on Eddie the Eagles, got relatively good reviews and I absolutely hated it. <clears throat> I, couldn't, I couldn't at all empathise with the over-the-top dorky character and for me the childish jokes did not land. Cliché caricatures and cheese, cheese, cheese. While I do enjoy underdog movies like Cool Runnings, this film just felt wrong with close-up shots that lingered too long, the bizarrely placed Jackman and Waltz uh, vaults all in sickening Technicolor. Maybe I'm just grumpy, but next time I'm steering clear of anything marketed as a feel-good movie. I'm going to go and see it because I'm a fan of Dexter Fletcher and uh, I know that some people... You know, I've I've read very different reviews of this film. Um, I really liked Sunshine on Leith, and uh, and I know that they've taken sort of liberties with the story, but I'm I'm still kind of looking forward to it. Chris Tolliday says, um, despite a cliched narrative and typical character arc, Eddie the Eagle is an emotional, heartwarming biopic that is thoroughly enjoyable 
and damn good fun. Taryn Edgerton plays the titular lead, and although we don't learn more about the man other than his determination to achieve, we are introduced to a character you can only sympathise with and ultimately root for. Edgerton uh, is a big reason for this in a stellar performance that should have been looked on at the awards circuit as he transforms into the eagle itself. His chemistry with Jackman is electric, and they are a team you cheer for. Goosebumps, cheering, screaming and happy tears are a necessity during this film. Okay, well, so the two very, very different perspectives on that. Eddie the Eagle at number four. Number three, BVS Dodge. I'm not sure what else there is to say about Batman, it. Batman, Superman, yeah. One of Justice. I mean, why did you say that? Were you told in your headphones no, to say what just, it was? It just occurred to just, me there'd be some people thinking, what the hell? What on earth is he talking about? Um, the, the, the film has become notable for being the focus of an apparent or an alleged schism between critics and audiences. You know, the critics didn't like it very much, and then it took uh, huge amounts of uh, uh, of money, although, it, you know, it is dropping. I mean, there's no question that it's, you know, it's, I, I would say two things. Firstly, just because people pay to see a film doesn't mean they like it. Um, secondly, uh, if, you re- um, if you read the reviews and if you, you know, go back and my review, for example, it's not just a matter of, dis- for a start, it's not a matter of dismissing it out of hand because of, you know, because of the director, because actually I think the director has done some interesting stuff. And I thought there was at least the germ of an interesting idea in Man of Steel, which kind of lost its way in the last third when it went to be sort of, you know, hitty, shouty, punchy. But up until that point was trying to do something different. The, the main problem with uh, Superman versus Batman, Man of Steel, is that... It is a bodge. It is a film which is incoherent to the point of annoyance. It's a film which literally spends time doing trailers for other films which will be coming in the future. Its cod religious uh, imagery is so shriekingly poorly handled that, you know, it's like, okay, it's an Easter release and everything, but really, I actually don't need you to be ladling it on that far. And, you know, there are some interesting points. I think Ben Affleck makes a good Batman. I think Henry Cavill has nothing to do whatsoever apart from be a bit stiff and awkward. I think that the the plot appears to have been put together by people on the back of a, you know, on the back of a beer mat, just going, how can we just get these future reference points together to work? Um, Somebody did point out, because I pointed out that that, that very early on, we see them coming out of a cinema to to which Excalibur is coming. Excalibur is on the marquee. um, I think it's coming next week, whatever it is. And I, I couldn't figure out what the Excalibur reference was all about. And then somebody pointed out to me that there is a reason for the Excalibur reference. And they were right and the, the Excalibur reference later on, there is something which happens which is so completely pointless until you go, oh, that's the punchline of the Excalibur gag. Right. Is it, okay, well, I missed that. Is there a character called Guinevere? No, but... Galahad? Okay, but just... I'm just guessing now this is based on no-no. No, 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 okay. Just very, very quickly close the microphones. Very quickly. I don't have that control. Okay, can you just, just literally, just for one second, Okay. There, you're not allowed to do that because if that goes on too long, the emergency. No, no, I know, no, no, but, but but that was the thing. I just told you what the what the thing was. All oh, right, yeah. So, so that so that is, but that completely nonsensical thing. Oh, that's what it is. I quite like to have the controls. Yeah. Uh, Zootropolis is at number two. Really enjoyed it. Really good fun. Terrific characterizations. Great story. I you know on a sort of 
message level. I like the fact that it's a film about diversity and it's a film about trust and understanding in an age of mistrust and misunderstanding. But more importantly, it's just terrifically good fun. The jokes are funny. The characters are engaging and likeable. The cityscapes are dazzling. I mean, people talk about the visually dazzling quality of Batman versus Superman, in which it, everything looks like you're looking at it through a fog. But um, no, I thought Zootropolis was was a really good family entertainment film and I like what it stood for and I like the way it told its story and I like the story and I went in with I have to say low expectations because the title is a bit naff I mean Zootopia isn't much better but but I thought it was great uh, the number one movie this week is The Huntsman Winter's War which you haven't, haven't seen. seen so here's Hannah from London Hannah Elias it's my first email to you just started listening to the podcast last week so she's extremely extremely new Huntsman uh, Winter's War unfolds like a storybook for dimwits it's an absolute waste of the talents of the three leading actresses at the peak of their powers. Jessica Chastain, Emily Blunt, Charlize Theron. The first movie in the series almost worked as a retelling of a cliched fairy tale trope by assigning Kristen Stewart's Snow White more agency and power in achieving her queenly destiny, with the Huntsman along as a sidekick for good measure. That the series has reassigned Hemsworth's Huntsman as the main protagonist is an extremely disappointing decision by the studio, as is the way the once formidable Snow White has been reduced to a gibbering, faceless wreck in this pre-sequel. None of the this act- is a really well-written email. Isn't None it? of the actresses seem to be having any fun, uh, leaving wooden heroes and villains on the screen, and me sitting in my cinema seat wondering. Honestly, why did they agree to be in this movie? What a waste. Give us the female-driven action fantasy we deserve. J.J. Abrams has shown it's not impossible within the confines of the studio system. Thank you, Hannah. Jack Cameron in Glasgow, so you know where this is going to go. I'm writing to give my thoughts on The Huntsman Winter's War. Sorry, what? What? Why do why say you know where this is going to go? Well, there's some discussion as you were tuned in last oh, week. Oh, that's right, about the accents. Uh-huh. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, fine. The latest offerings in just because you can doesn't mean you You should. should. (laughs) Cinema is rubbish. Chris Hemsworth and Jessica Chastain's accents are the first things I'd like to bring your attention to. First of all, why? Second Second of all, stop. Can someone please tell Hollywood that speaking in gruff tones and adding 17 to every single word does not make a Scottish accent? It It doesn't? No, it was at best merely irritating and the rest of the time a continuous stream of inarticulate vowel sounds. Secondly, Emily Blunt's character, Freya, are we to understand that to achieve happiness she must have a child and failing that she's fated to become an evil witch? Wow, how inspirational. I I have no idea whether this is a plot spoiler, what you've just said. Well, I'm just reading it out. It's it's the Huntsman, Winter's War. (laughs) Uh, Even Chastain Sarah gets woefully sidetracked by Chris Hemsworth. Would it have been too much to at least call it the Huntsmen, plural? Also, as for the misogynist dwarfs, was this really the best joke they could come up with for these characters? This was a film which once again woefully suffered from underwritten characters and overwritten plot. By simply casting the acting characters of Emily Blunt and Charlize Theron does not automatically make your characters Agent Kate Maces or Impossible. Imperator Furiosa. I've always struggled. Imperator. Isn't it Imperator? Well, it's written Imperator. Im- yeah, I mean, but, but don't they say Imperator Furiosa? I can't remember. I've always been saying Imperator. I may anyway, have been wrong. Anyway, there's loads more like that. Imperator However, Furiosa has a nice ring to it. We though. have other things to consider. Do we? For example, yes. The Jungle Book. Yeah. Have you noticed that's out? I, I, I heard. It's a big new release. And have be, you been hanging out with the director? I have been spending at least 15 minutes with the director, which fortunately we recorded. Oh, fine. So you can hear everything about... In advance, did you bond? 
We bonded in a showbiz Hollywood way. Okay. I kind of superficially. Actually, we didn't bond because I saw him about half an hour later and he blanked me completely. Okay, fine. What else are you going to be reviewing once we've been jungle booking? Uh, we'll be doing Criminal. We'll be doing Eye in the Sky. Uh, we'll be doing Le Sweeney Paris. Say again? Le Sweeney Paris. Is that what it's called? It's called Sweeney Paris. Or was it called Sweeney France? It's a French version of the Sweeney. Yeah, mon brave. Il est une version de français de la Sweeney. Stick a reddies down the boot. I'm already looking for it. do and run a pour it. It can only end extremely messily, I think. Um, so let's talk Jungle Book. And yes. One of the stories that doesn't come up in the conversation with John Farrow is what kind of a film it is. Because there's, yes. no, there's no point in that because we'll, there's lots of other things to discuss. Because it's being described as live action because mm-hmm. it's clearly not like the 1967 yeah. cartoon. But is it really well live action because there's just one actor? We we are at a very interesting point in cinema history in which the divide between live action and animation is becoming completely blurred. I mean, actually, you know, back to Avatar and, and beyond. In the case of Jungle Book, it has a live action feel in as much as it appears to be a photorealist background. But the fact of the matter is that outside of uh, Neil Sutter, who's the guy who plays Mowgli, everything you see is CG landscape. And there are certain you know props and things that are obviously sort of physical. But essentially, what you're looking at is is an animation with a live with with you know with a live actor in the middle of it. But actually, an off. So it's in that very strange world between. I mean, when you watch when you watch it, it looks like a camera actually moving through you know as I said, photorealist yeah. landscapes, and it has a slightly dreamy, slightly surreal, slightly kind of you know heightened heightened reality mythical, mythical feel to it. Um, so it is technically a live action film, but actually it is, I, I would argue, on the cusp of live action and animation, and more of what you see is animated than live. All right, you'll hear what John Favreau says in just a second. Let's just play you uh, a clip from the new Jungle Book. Uh, this is featuring Neil Seti as Mowgli, as Mark just mentioned, the voices of Lupita Nyongo as Raksha, Giancarlo Esposito as Arcala, and it starts with Ben Kingsley, the voice of Bagheera. Maybe I can be of help. The boy's right. Maybe it's time he found another people. No. I'm the one who brought him to you, and now I'll return him to where he belongs. I won't let you. He's my cub. We knew this day would come. We are the only family he's ever known. Raksha. It's the only place he'll be safe. It's okay, Ami. It won't go far. Come back and visit. Uh, the key leaving the pack uh, scene from the Jungle Book. John Favreau is the director. John, hello, uh, welcome to the program. Just, uh, just explain that scene. Could you just to uh, t- to get us launched on this? Well, if you if you um, if you know the Kipling and uh, or, or remember the animated film, there's a, a character named Shere Khan, this ferocious tiger who who looms over the jungle as the apex predator, who has decided as Mowgli's on the cusp of manhood that it is time for the man cub to either be destroyed or leave. And, uh, and he threatens the, all of the animal kingdom that if the, if the boy isn't gone by the time the water truce is over, um, that, that he's going to come get him. And so the boy decides that it's time for him to go back and they're going to bring him back to the man village where he could be with his own kind. When you hear that just as audio, because we weren't playing in any right. pictures, what with this being radio and everything, yes. do you think, I've heard this, I really don't want to hear this again, I've gone through this so many times, or do you think, okay, this is, this is great? 
Well, because so much of it was, you know, I, I, we really had it work as a radio play before we ever animated. We recorded everything with the actors uh, together whenever we could and with, with uh, Neil Seti, who plays Mowgli, performing with them. We had to make it work as a radio play. And then from there, you turn that over to the animators and we begin to figure out how we're going to motion capture it, keyframe animate it, and, and ultimately film the boy to fit in with all of these uh, digital elements. So I like it. I, I, I chose the cast because of their voices. And you heard there Sir Ben Kingsley, who, who has a nice set of pipes on him. He does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? Can I um, ask you about Neil Seti then? Because obviously there's a technology conversation to be had. But you, obviously you had to get the right... Yeah, and when important. when Lenny Abrahamson was in to talk about Room, and he was talking about casting the boy, mm-hmm. and obviously crucial, and what an extraordinary film that was, yeah, and yeah. what a great discovery he was. And we and we hear directors saying it was very important to get the casting right, and we knew we had to find the right boy. But I don't think I've ever seen a movie where the boy is the only character. <laughs> he really so is. Neil Seti is the only live actor that we see. There was. Enormous pressure. It's enormously important, especially because we made the decision early on that we were not going to have the animals emote beyond what an animal normally could. We would we would manipulate that that their movement and and their facial, you know, their facial expressions to a certain point. But the fact was, you needed to cut to the kid to see to check in and and to bring the humanity to it. You could only do so much with a voice, uh, and so it was we. we we required somebody that was going to carry the emotional weight of the film. And we also, you know, we're concerned about anytime you have a, a, a young actor, you want to make sure they don't outstay their welcome. It's, it's, it's rare that you, there's a child actor that you want to watch for an hour and a half. They, they, you know, it's nice to walk in and out as the neighbor's kid in a sitcom, but, but to actually have them carry a film, much like in the case of Room. Um, you, you require, uh, you know, somebody who's got a very special set of qualities. So where did you find Neil Seti? You know, we did a, he was in Manhattan. We had searched the globe. <laughs> We'd gone through all the, the usual suspect, the actors that had had some experience. And we finally found somebody who had not only never acted before, but never auditioned before. He was nine, which was younger than we thought we'd go. And, this is uh, almost too Hollywood. John. It this really is- was. <laughs> And he had, you know, he just was very charismatic. He had no fear. He was athletic. He was, uh, you know, he played sports. He, he did some martial arts on the audition tape and said he was, he, he was going to do all his own stunts as well. And he just had a great attitude that reminded me uh, a lot of the kid from the animated film from 1967. He looks, he looks like him. He kind of does. And he's got like a glow. He's just, I've been doing interviews with the kid now all around the world. I never get tired of watching this kid talk. I don't know what it is. There's just something about certain people that make you smile when you watch them just behaving, and he's one of those people. Why did you decide? You mentioned about deciding not to make the animals emote too much. Why why did you decide that? It starts to – I'm very uh, reticent about the use of CGI, which sounds funny because I made a a movie that's completely computer-rendered here other than the kid. But part of why I think I've had success in the past on, on, on films like Iron Man and, and the effects have looked good is because I've never asked too much of the effects. And when you ask things to behave in a way that they don't in nature, it starts to make things look fake, even if they're well executed. And so creating parameters to create a sense of naturalism to this version of The Jungle Book was important to me. Iron Man was 2008, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. This movie wouldn't have been possible then, would it? No, no. I was just becoming comfortable with 
rendering hard surfaces like um, metal, like a suit. Uh, it's always easier to do things that are that are metallic rather than fur and flesh. Uh, but they had asked me uh, originally to, to do uh, the Hulk uh, as one of the choices because if you remember, Marvel had two titles in their first wave. One was Iron Man, one was the Incredible Hulk. And I didn't feel the technology was there for the Hulk yet. And I was concerned about being able to do it convincingly. Uh, of course, it, you could CGI doesn't have to be perfect to tell a good story, but from my sensibility, I like it to be. I, I want to pull it off like a magic trick where it's indistinguishable. Can you explain uh, for those of us who've never played with these toys what yeah. it is? What it is that has developed the kit that you were given yeah. last year and the to assemble this extraordinary finished product well it was a combination of technologies but but the uh the key partner here was a, a was a, a company right here in london called mpc and they had you know uh, state-of-the-art tools they developed some new tools to render things like fur and make the water behave in a believable way and have the little things like the skin move over the muscle in a believable way little things that that tell your mind subconsciously that you're looking at something real and so when you when you peel it down to its most simple layer, it's you're, you're generating an environment uh, much like a video game would, except it's finished to a much higher level of reality. And you're animating characters that are basically rigged digital puppets that the, that the animators either use the reference of motion capture, which we did on this movie, to help drive the animation, or the performances uh, of the facial expressions of the actors, which also was incorporated into this. And it's a combination of the editor, uh, the people who are editing the footage, the people who are animating, the people who are art directing the background. And ultimately, these digital tools are serving the same purpose that in Walt Disney's days, you know, background painters would use or um, animators, ink and paint people who would, who would use brushes and paint to do the same thing that we're using computers to do in a much more sophisticated way. But... I can't impress enough. These are handmade films where these are all artists who are using these digital tools to help um, fool the audience into believing they're seeing something real. And you mentioned Walt Disney. Many people, including myself, would consider Jungle Book to be his greatest oh, wow. movie. Okay. There must have been a point where – it's not a scary question, by the way. Uh, you must have thought, uh, hmm – do I want to go here? Or was it an obvious choice for you? I, I wasn't scared of it. I don't think that – I certainly the studio didn't understand how um, significant of a legacy that film had. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it was because it was uh, 67 and a lot of us grew up with it. Um, because there's not that same level of preciousness taken with films like, um, you know, when they make Snow White and the Huntsman or, or Alice in Wonderland. They, they take a lot of liberties with the material. Uh, and even even uh, Cinderella, to some, to some extent, they took some liberties, and definitely Maleficent. But with this one, people were very concerned about the music. They were very concerned about moments in it. And then there's also the Kipling, which was uh, uh, the source material that we, we leaned on as well, which is much different in tone and much different. Uh, they're different characters. It, uh, Walt Disney took a lot of liberty with the source material there. And if you just look at the... The, the children's version of the musical version of this film that we grew up with and you did that in live action, it wouldn't work. And so we had to make it a bit more of, a, of an adventure film and feel a little bit more in line with the older Disney animated classics and films like The Lion King where there was a real sense of danger. And so mixing that dangerous tone with the music and the humor, we, uh, we tried to 
stay consistent with the with the Disney tradition, but also include the things that we've grown to love, like mm-hmm. the music and the humor and the personality of the characters from the original film. Did you always know which songs you were going to include? Was there ever a moment where you thought, actually, we don't need the songs? It started off, there was no, there was no music when I was hired, and I felt that we had to work in. First, I got bare necessities in, and then the idea of I want to be like you, is there a way to, with the menacing environment and scene and character that Christopher Walken plays with King Louis, was there going to be a way to work that music in too? And then, of course, we also wove in a lot of the music into the score, so if you're familiar with the film, you'll hear a lot of of, uh, tips of the hat to to the old old themes, and in the end credits, we have a, a number of wonderful songs but but the challenge was how much music could you have without turning into a musical which would inevitably reduce the stakes and the sense of of danger that i think is required to make a film of this size and scale that appeals to this broad of an audience and you say it started as a radio play essentially and you chose your vocal cast very carefully and uh, people will love bill murray of course oh yeah he's fantastic Uh, and you mentioned ben kingsley and idris elba yes Uh, how terrifying is he and scarlett johansson i mean this this is First rate material. First rate, and uh, and and Idris, if you you know if you've ever had him in here, you know he could not be further from that in life. He's the most uh, uh, engaging, enthusiastic uh, person, and he's a you know he's an actor who's really coming into his own now. And both he and Lupita Nyong'o are are you know being recognized for their talent and have really really rich backgrounds in in uh, in, in theater and film. And so it's a, it was a really fun time to work with them too, the new wave of these stars that are just starting to pop now. So it was a – and then, of course, Neil, who, who's never done anything before. And so we had a really good mix of experienced cast and, and people who were new. Everybody felt enthusiasm. And what's so fun now is to show them the finished product, which although I showed them uh, artwork and I discussed what it would be, it's not till you s- sit in a theater and see this, especially in 3D, and the thing just hits you like a – like a wave. It's it's a, quite an overwhelming experience for me when I saw this for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just seen it the once. I'm determined to see it again. I think it's probably my favorite film of the year. I think That's it's high praise. Thank you. Absolutely sensational. Can I ask you, on behalf of uh, families who I know will once once it, it's out there and they're wondering who they can take to see this? Yeah, this is a PG certificate. It is scary. I mean, the the fact is the violence is off screen. Uh, I have I have three kids. But I really embraced what, you know, in the Disney tradition, letting the world be scary from time to time. And, and uh, you know, and, and the, there's, there's a, an intensity that comes with the 3D and with the um, just the realism of the image. Uh, and it's a scary bad guy who's trying to catch the kid. Uh, but I, I would say that there, again, if you know your kid, uh, I've heard very young kids who've seen it, enjoyed it. Take a look at the trailer online. Don't assume it's going to be like the cartoon from the '60s. It's it's a bit it's a bit. Um, well, I think that's the key that. thing, isn't it? It is more intense, yeah. and it yeah. is. But look at the violent. trailer. What you know, the, the marketing department from Disney actually did a really good job of showing the tone. And if anything, the trailer plays is darker than the film. So if they if if your kids like the trailer and you think they could handle it, you know, I, I would be comfortable bringing them the film. But if you're on the fence. You know, go see it yourself. It's going to be a good film. And then if you think it's something your kids could handle, bring them back again. There's enough to see in this movie. It's worth checking out twice. And did you, uh, at the end of it, think, I'd like to go back and do this again? I would love to work with these tools again. Oh, yeah. Now I, you know, it's taken me three years. I finally, now you go from a novice to, to somebody who's an expert because people don't play, not a lot of people are using these tools. And now that I've, 
uh, gotten a, a comfortable understanding of of how to tell stories with them, you know, your your imagination just opens up, and and especially if you go back to the Kipling, there's so many stories, and and uh, what a great group uh, company of actors I have. You don't want to let them go, right. and I and I don't mind working on a film for this long if if the if the effect is is this dramatic. So Jungle Book two. I'd love to. I'd love to. We have to see how it goes. With the big movies, it's they It's going to uh, go fine, John. I hope honestly. so. Cheers. The Thank reviews you. are extraordinary. I mean, you must be hugely relieved. I am relieved. Because you don't know. You don't know. You're, you're taking a lot of... You're, you're making a lot of choices with your casting decisions, with the tone of the film. You know, how um, how much do you want to make it feel like a, a, an action-adventure movie? And what, what happens is now, I think Disney was very happy that the people who were the most curious were actually the older uh, uh, set. And not not old people like me, but old people like the you know the millennials who might not want to go see a movie you know with one ten year old kid and talking animals. That's not usually an older skewing film. No. And now because of because of the way it was executed, there seems to be an excitement about it, and uh, and I think that's an unexpected surprise that we're all embracing. John Favreau, thanks very much for your time. Uh, John Favreau is speaking That's to me. Got, uh, got a lovely a, voice, isn't he? Yeah, lovely. Hugely and, listenable. And uh, we could have spoken for ages. But anyway, he clearly was having a fabulous time. You know, you could hear, as, as soon as I asked him about doing another one, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Jungle Book. It was interesting because you and I saw this in the same screening. And uh, I had, I think, approached it, as I think many people had done, with a degree of trepidation. I know people had seen it before we saw it. But, you know, you always wonder, what's this going to look like? What's the point? You know, is it going to be going back towards the Roger Kipling, or is it going to be... You know, in the, you remember when Kenneth Branagh came on, he was talking about Cinderella. He was talking about that kind of balance between, on the one hand, looking back towards the literary sources, the folklore, so the you know, fairy tale sources, and also respecting the cartoon, and, and that you're, what you're doing is kind of like a live-action version of the cartoon. So I was, I, I was very trepidatious about it, and I have to say I went in worrying that, that it wasn't going to gel. I came out, and I think we, we all did. It was you who was there, I... I, I I was there, you were there, Robin was there from the production office, Simon Paul was there. And, we all were and I was there, and you were yes. there. And we all came out going, wow, wasn't that terrific? And there are a number of reasons why I think we we all sort of were so positive about it. The first one was I do think that there there was a worry that it might not work, that it might, it might not achieve what, you know, because the cartoon is so fabulous. I know that it was I was very interested to hear John Favreau say in that interview that it was something that now they didn't perhaps didn't realize the value of which I'm absolutely astonished by because you always think of it as being absolutely one of the mainstays I mean, one of the films that you grew up with. It was one of the first films I ever saw in the cinema. I remember being taken to see it. I remember remember being really sort of profoundly affected by it and then having the soundtrack album and all that. So, I thought that a number of things. Firstly, it does a really good job of balancing threat and pathos of, you know, menace and humour. So we start with a kind of running, jumping, action, chase sequence that sort of sets the pace. It tells you, OK, fine, this is going to be... I saw that some people in, the, uh, in uh, on Twitter were calling this the Jungle Book meets The Revenant. Well, it's not that. It, that's a silly thing to say. But on the other hand, there is that kind of, you know, that action pack. And also, just on that opening thing, don't miss the first 30 seconds. No, no, because, it, because it's... Yeah, 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 it's a really... It sets the tone. Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, you get that. Secondly, um, uh, Neil said he is terrific as Mowgli. And there is... This really weird thing when you first see him, that's everything to do with his stance, his the way in which he holds himself. 
it's that really peculiar thing. Or it is, as you said, it's almost like seeing the, the cartoon character that you know come to life. I mean, it's really quite remarkable how much he gets that stance right, that sort of, you know, absolute, you know, leading, sort of confident, and yet also, you know, childlike. I think his performance is brilliant and all the more astonishing considering the fact that what he's doing is looking around at, you know, green and blue screens and not actually being able to see any of these creatures. Um, I think that the, the world that it evokes uh, is terrific. There is this kind of sense of dreaminess about it. I mean, yes, it's photorealist and you do believe that what you're looking at is a real sort of three-dimensional set, but it has this photorealist feel to it, but it also has that kind of strange dreamlike feel that everything's heightened, everything's slightly cranked up, everything's not quite real, so it's happening in a sort of half-remembered haze, which I like very much. Animal characterizations are really well done, and again, interesting in that interview that he was saying we didn't want to over-crank their responses. So, in fact, what happens is it's in seeing the responses on the face of Mowgli that you actually get to understand the way in which the narrative is playing out. And then, because the way that the score works, where the music works, is that you're hearing, you know, there, there, are, there are all those sort of themes and hints that you know from before. And then the point at which it breaks into song, I thought worked really naturally. The point at which Bill Murray suddenly starts doing a version of Bare Necessities, although he's not really singing, he's kind of talking his way through it. I thought was really, really well done. He thought, oh, actually, they've tipped this over into being a film with songs in it, but it isn't a musical. And I was thinking, you know, we were talking about Magnolia before. You know, there's that moment in Magnolia when it suddenly basically turns into a musical yeah. sequence when everybody, I'm not saying for one minute the Jungle Book is like Magnolia, but I'm saying this is an example of a film which isn't a musical, but is so, it has such musicality in the way in which it tells its story that when it tips over into song, it doesn't seem in any way out of place. Christopher Walken's having great fun with the King Louis. <laughs> Doing that. What's that? He's doing the Christopher Walken thing, and he is. Uh, what is he? Is he a gigantic, gigantic, gigantic? What is it? Gigantopithecus. Gigantopithecus. And of course, they got him. Richard Sherman came in to write some new lines for that song in order to make that work. So basically, I think what it had it has darkness, it has depth, it has the light and shade that you want from a sort of proper, fully rounded family film. It absolutely is a film which is in love with the original Disney cartoon, but also refers back to the Rudyard Kipling source. Um, it's a movie which is made with clear hand-drawn affection, despite the fact it's all computer graphics. It's absolutely right to say that it's a hand-drawn thing. And I just sat there beaming, thinking this is, it's working. I'm really quite surprised, but it's all coming together. And I think, although there's been a lot of stuff about the darkness and about how much, you know, the, the, the tiger can be scary, obviously, Idris Elba's fantastic, incidentally. Um, I don't think it, it tips too far. I don't, think it, I don't think it gets too far away from the fact that, you know, it's a family film in, in that Disney tradition of family films that have darkness but are still for audiences of all ages. I just want to mention uh, a couple of things. Yes. Firstly, and we actually we thought about this, but we took it out of the interview. Right? Okay. Well, you could have put it back in. I could have put it back in, but we talk about the level of threat and the level of oh, yes, yes. how scary the movie is. Yeah. And I say, as people would have heard in the interview, it's a PG. Yeah. And and John Favreau actually says, no, it's a 12. And I didn't have the right sort of material with me to... Sorry, you don't have to look it, it up. It is a PG. It is a PG. Yeah. But I think it's it's indicative. I think he was confusing with PG-13. Oh, yes, 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 sure. Which in America, different. But as, as a steer towards... Yeah where it is, yes. I thought it was quite interesting that he would even consider the yeah. fact that it was possibly a 12. And and as he said, watch the trailer. If in doubt, go and see it. Because it is, it's a, quite a big step up in terms of the level of threat from the 1967 cartoon. Yeah, the thing that I'd say is it's important not to become 
And because some people have concentrated a lot on how dark and how scary it is. As I said, there's that thing during the rounds moment saying it's it's the Revenant meets the Jungle Book, which it absolutely isn't. No. And I, I think what was interesting was John Favreau talking as a parent, saying, well, I don't want, you know, I, w- I wouldn't want people to to, 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 have to bring young children who would be distressed by it. And certainly there there is an intensity to it because when you have a photorealist tiger, there is an intensity to that which you're not going to get from you know from a from a from a cartoon which in which you know you are you you at least know that what you're watching is artificial and I think it is so the important thing for me wasn't it's not so much that it's that it's scary or violent all the violence is off screen it's more that it's intense and this is always the difficult thing to kind of classify for I think the BBFC and certainly have got it right I think it's not a 12 certificate movie I think it is a PG certificate movie but it's an in- there are intense sequences mm. of it and this is always the hardest thing to judge and it was funny because when you were talking to him I, I listened to the interview and and he said well you know obviously the ideal thing would be parents go and see it once and decide whether they're younger children then go and see it again because because of course everyone's going to say that because repeat business is but actually I have to say it is one of the very few films in which, I mean, you're saying that you want to go and see it again. Absolutely. In which seeing it again wouldn't be a hardship because it would be interesting to watch it again. So I think it's intense rather than scary, but there are certainly sequences in it which if you are, you know, a, a young child who is, you know, scared by the prospect of what looks like a photorealist tiger leaping towards you, then yes, those sequences would be disturbing. I th- and I think, uh, I mean, as I said to John uh, in the interview, I think it's my favourite movie of the year so far, but I think... It didn't actually need the music. That's I think. I mean, oh, did you did the did the songs bother you? No, no, they didn't bother me. But the first reference that you really get is when um, uh, Baloo just sort of starts humming. Yeah, and I thought, mm-hmm. if, that's, if that's if that's as far as it goes, then, you can, you'll be all right. And that's really very smart okay. and very clever. So that's how good it was that it actually didn't need to have the big hits. Yeah, uh, laid on. The but, other thing I want to ask you is about is about the three D. Oh, yes. Because I, you and I both saw it in 3D. We saw it in laser-projected 3D, didn't we? Yes, laser-projected 3D, which had all kinds of extra <laughs> treats for us, for like the lights coming on for no reason. But anyway, that wasn't... That it, was was a really, it was a great screening room, but they had problems with the, the automatic lights coming on and going off. And whereas in a, in a previous time, you would have just turned the lights off with a switch, now you have to ask a computer to do it, mm-hmm. and the computer definitely said no. But the, uh, I mean, it's a bit like Avatar in this respect, but I thought the 3D... There's none of the 3D tricks, I, the, none of that. It's not like that at all. But in terms of giving the jungle depth, which they created clearly with all the toys that John Favreau was talking about, I thought it worked. And if it's going to work, it's going to work for movies like this. I think it's telling that I had pretty much forgotten that I'd seen it in 3D. Or it was only Monday that we saw it. And I think that's a good thing because what it meant was that the 3D wasn't bothering me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Which is praise indeed. No, it is because actually in the... And I felt the same thing about you know Gravity, which I said before was a film I think actually you need to see in 3D. I think you could quite easily see Jungle Book in 2D and it wouldn't bother me. But I, seeing it in 3D, I, I got, I, it didn't bother me at all. I felt that I was immersed in the landscape, but that was largely because I was immersed in the characters. And, uh, and I, liked the, I liked the storytelling, which was brisk and clean and... And got on with the job, you know. I mean, it, it had a story to tell, and it knew how to do it. And it was it was very well paced. And that kid is just terrific. I mean, you just think, fine, okay, fine, yeah, I'll go on a, you know, I'll I'll spend the next ninety whatever hundred minutes in your company because I think you're kind of fun. Yeah, in your, you know, very very likable presence, every bit as much as in the animated version. Oliver Clark says uh, on this email, Jungle Book utterly marvelous in all regards. It is able to stand next to the original in both charm and quality. 
uh, yet drives the narrative forward in its own new and modern direction. And the Gigantopithecus... Gigantopithecus. Which is the ape. That's right. Uh, as played by Christopher Walken, well, voiced by Christopher Walken. He's a, a real thing. It's an extinct genus of ape that existed from perhaps 9 million years to as recently as 100,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, the largest known ape that ever existed, and when you see the when you see the ape, it's a whole lot bigger than the original. Well, because when he, when he's first introduced, it's almost like the Godfather because you can't see; he's just in shadow. Yeah. He's doing that mugly. It's uh, believed wow. it grew up to nine point eight feet high, three meters high. Well, the one in the movie is more than nine point eight meters high. The one in the movie is the size of a Kong. house. It's sort of King Kong time, <laughs> it is. isn't it? And one other thing, just to mention, not that you would, but wait for the end credits, not for the usual reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're beautiful. You describe it sort of. It's back to the book. Well, yeah, basically. Well, also back to the cartoon because the cartoon's got the the the, the Disney cartoon's got the whole thing about opening the book and you know reading the the story through the book. And in the closing credit sequence of uh, the New Jungle Book. It's basically an animated version of the book, which as the pages open, these sort of animal characters play in and out of the pages, but done in a way that's not that's really kind of delightful and really funny. And also, I have to say that there is there's one moment in the film which, if particularly if you're taking younger viewers, they might they let them stay to the end because there is a there is a resolution of one thing which might you know what I'm saying, don't you? Mm-hmm. There's a yeah, there's a get fine. So actually, but anyway, just watch them because the end credits are really really nicely done, and it's not that there's some stupid outtake bloopers reel. Mayo at bbc.co.uk eight five zero five eight, and also you can uh, you can live stream should you wish. <laughs> what a treat that is! Yes, uh, via the five live. Well, I'm apparently looking particularly Richard Nixon this week. Well, a lot of people commenting on the severity of your... No, no, but actually it seemed more severe because I'd been rained on, so it was slightly... I hope it's now a little bit more sort of... But yes, it's uh, just as lovely as normal. Thank you, Simon. Catherine Mallon in Timoth. Um, Dear Hobie and Lawrence, I've had... uh, I've just been to see Hail Caesar and I thought I'd let you know about a Hail Caesar moment that I've experienced whilst watching a completely different film. Okay. This is a Hail Caesar moment. I didn't know there was such a thing. Last Saturday, myself, husband Graham, daughter Natasha, son Alexander and his girlfriend Scarlett decided to have a family film night. After some squabbling, we eventually settled on Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. After five minutes, Harry is asked a question by another character. He pauses, thinks and then replies... It's complicated, except he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't say. He doesn't say, it. Uh, he doesn't say it like Hobie. Would that it were so simple? That would, if he'd said that, that would have been even better. The three of us who had seen Hail Caesar dissolved into a fit of uncontrollable <laughs> giggles, much to the bemusement of the other two. Uh, we had to pause the film for a good ten minutes in order to regain <laughs> our composure. And I was just wondering if any other Wittertainees have experienced a Hail Caesar moment whilst watching any... I hope that becomes a thing because, the, frankly, Hail Caesar has, has not got anything like enough love. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it and so did you. And we both sat there, laughed and grinned mm-hmm. all the way through it. And yet, you know, we've had many people write in to say they didn't like it, they didn't think it was funny, they didn't find it engaging. I mean, I... I, I would happily watch Hail Caesar again, like right now, like stop doing the programme and just watch Hail Caesar because it was so funny. You'd be out of contract. I know I'd be out of contract. I know yeah. technically... I've seen, I, went to see it. I went to see it again. Oh, so you've seen it twice? Laughed as much the second time. And was that, was the wood that it was so simple? Oh, it was, was it really hilarious the second time? It's right? terrific. It is just, it's a classic, it, well, it's it, it, a classic yeah. scene. You can watch it a thousand times. It's very clever You went a bit Christopher Walken just then. You went, it's a classic yeah. scene. Yeah. Anyway. It's complicated. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Anyway, a whole bunch of new stuff uh, out this week. What else competing 
with Jungle Book. But let's do Eye in the Sky, which is the new film by Gavin Hood, uh, who made Totsi, which won uh, the Oscar in 2005, uh, and since then made Rendition uh, 2007. Ender's Game, the underrated Ender's Game, I think, in uh, 2013. So... Basically, this there have been there have been films in the recent past about the sort of peculiarly disengaged nature of modern warfare about drones. So there is a film, there's a Rick Rosenthal film from 2013 called Drones. There's that film from 2014 um, by Andrew Nichol called Good Kill. Um, the story here is basically a series of disparate players who are in various locations. So we're talking about London and Nevada and America at one point, Pearl Harbor and uh, Surrey, all these different people, all looking at video screens of an ongoing drone operation in Nairobi and all arguing about whether or not the operation may or may not proceed. At the centre of it all is Helen Mirren, who plays a colonel who has been chasing a particular terrorist suspect for a very long time. She has intel that... uh, that the particular suspect and other terrorists are going to be gathering at a safe house and there is a drone which is piloted from remote control by uh, Steve Watts, played by Aaron Paul. Many people will still, I think, know best from uh, Breaking Bad. Alan Rickman is uh, the general in charge of the operation at this end, but they have sort of four or five different people all chipping into the conversation at the same time about whether or not the operation can can proceed because what they can all see is that although the people that they think are in the house are indeed in the house, if there is a strike there will be collateral damage. And the collateral damage is essentially, in, in, for dramatic purposes in this house, a young girl who is in a yard nearby who, as the operation begins, sets up a stall very, very nearby in which it is evident that if there is a strike, she is going to be a casualty of war. Here's a clip. So the plan is to put a hellfire through the roof of that house. I need legal clearance right now. So this is no longer a capture situation? No. We have two suicide vests with explosives inside that house. So can you clear me to a higher CDE? Do I have authority to strike? The rules of engagement you're operating under only allow for a low collateral damage estimate. Yes, yes, and my weapons only invoke a low CDE. It's the explosives inside that house that bring it to a potentially high CDE. And since you know the explosives are there, it is incumbent upon you to take them into account. I I can see a potential legal objection. Jesus, we've got two suicide bombers and three very high-value individuals inside that house. And you want them off your list, I understand that, but the rules of engagement you're operating under envisage a capture, not a kill scenario. Mom, I think it would be wise to refer up. Are you telling me that or just debating with me? To refer up? Mm-hmm. I am telling you. <sighs> and the rest of the film is basically a series of people referring up. Now... It's a really interesting uh, premise because essentially what it's saying is it's a movie about disengaged warfare in which what you have is, you know, hawks and doves, you have uh, military personnel, you have politicians, you have the Americans on the one hand and the Brits on the other hand who have got a very, very different attitude towards the way in which these operations should play. And essentially it could be described as a film in which a series of people in a series of rooms argue with each other on telephones and on video screens. The the real the really impressive thing about it is that Gavin Hood, working from uh, you know, I think actually a, a very a very fine script guy here, but manages to make it much more cinematic than that. 
what it does is it sets up this scenario and then proceeds to look at it from you know every different angle the angle of the you know the drone pilot who doesn't want to do something that will have this evident collateral damage um the military who understand that what they have is an operation they're not going to get the chance to do again politicians who are ter- more concerned to some extent about saving face than saving lives the argument about the propaganda war versus the and all this is going on whilst this uh, drone is hovering in the air and the people gathered in the house are only going to be there for a certain amount of time. And the film seems to play out in something approximating real time. Uh, Alan Rickman, in his last on-screen role, he will we, he's done a, a voiceover. For, there are, the, the, there's a voice performance still to come, but it's his last on-screen role. I think it's absolutely terrific. You know that air of withering disdain that Rickman did better than anybody else? When he's constantly having to ask everybody around him, the, you know, the politicians, and do we have permission to proceed? And Jeremy Northam is particularly good at doing that kind of sweaty rabbit in the headlines panic when asked a direct question about do we have your permission to proceed? At times, there's a hint of sort of Doctor Strange lovey satire to it. Um, uh, Ian Glenn is the Foreign Secretary receiving a call whilst um, uh, discombobulated on a toilet in Singapore. Uh, the Americans being interrupted in the middle of an apparently important game of ping pong in Beijing, wondering why it is that the Brits are dithering about this in a way that they wouldn't. And what I liked about it was I went in sort of sort of knowing what the setup was. And I have to say, I'd seen a trailer and I'd seen a clip for it as well, which didn't look that promising. In fact, you'd, I think you'd said the same thing. Well, the, the basis of the trailer, I thought, oh, that looks awful. And what did you, but, but what was it that you thought was going to be awful? I d- it just looked cheap and hackneyed, okay, basically. Fine. So when you came in and said, it's fantastic, I thinking, okay, well. I really, really enjoyed it. It was genuinely gripping edge of the seat stuff. But what what I liked about it was that it had on the one hand, the kind of, um, you know, the newsworthiness of something like rendition. It also had, I mean, when it, you know, Ender's Game was overlooked, and I, which I think is a shame, but Ender's Game had that kind of deadly video game, you know, high tech surveillance, you know, in be, being involved in a video game, which turns out to be more than a video game, science fiction story. You know, those things seem like they're they're kind of strange to refer to that to a film like Eye in the Sky, but actually there is a connection. Then Barkhad Abdi is the one character who is the guy on the ground, actually there in Nairobi with these tiny little kind of robotic cameras, which actually do take the film into the areas of science fiction. They have like a, a hummingbird with a camera in it and a thing which looks like a sort of like a big beetle, flying beetle that's got a camera in it. And these are apparently within the realms of fantasy. The, the argument is that there's something that is being developed now, but the kind of resolution that they have means that it's, it's not it's not something you're actually genuinely dealing with. And yet Barkhad Abdi, who is so brilliant, remember him in Captain Phillips? He was the, the lead hijacker yeah. and was so terrific in that film because what he managed to do was to make that character seem real and make him seem convincing and at the same time threatening and sympathetic, which is a very hard thing to do. I think that despite the fact in this, you know, you've got Jeremy Northam, you've got Alan Rickman, you've got uh, 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 Helen Mirren, you've got, you know, really sort of well-known, solid, respected actors. Actually, the most complicated role is Barkhad Abdi making that guy on the ground with these strange little spy bugs work because that's actually the part of the film at which you'd expect somebody to go, oh, hang on, I don't believe this. This is pushing it over into the realms of the unreal. And I think he's, he's terrific. I mean, he's really convincing. You really believe in his situation. The other thing that I think is impressive is that what Gavin Hood has done is to recognise that there is a cinematic problem with having people in rooms talking on phones, arguing on video screens. And so what he's done is to make the spaces as cinematic as possible. So 
whether it's the porter cabin from which the drone pilot is operating or the meeting room in which the politicians are arguing or the operations room in which Helen Miriam is trying to move the operation forward. These are all, I mean, I think, I think probably they're, and I think he's talked about this, I think they are larger than they would be in real life, but they're done in a way that makes the experience cinematic. And if you think about films that we've seen recently of people doing stuff on screen. You know, the thing I always refer back to is that Hackers is one of the very few films that's ever made people watching screens actually seem you know, cinematic. I think this does manage to do it. Plus, the performances are absolutely top flight. And it is like watching a group of very fine actors taking a script which is, you know, multi-layered, multifaceted, but also is a multiplex thriller. Also is something which is wanting to play to a mainstream audience. I mean, some people have complained that actually there is a level of melodramatic contrivance in the setup. Um, and there is. There's no question about it. There absolutely is a level of melodramatic contrivance in the setup. But I think that's because the film is aiming to play to a wide audience. And my own feeling is that watching it, you'll be on the edge of your seat whilst watching the film. And then afterwards, you will want to talk about it. And that's what it's trying to do. So it, I think it works on the level of a mainstream thriller. I think it works on the level of being a sort of talking point movie. I think Mirren and uh, uh, and Alan Rickman are, are really terrific. And I think Barkhad Abdi is, is great and, as I said, manages to make a, make a role which could easily tip over and something was unbelievable, very believable. Uh, so your correspondence on Eye in the Sky, here's a very personal uh, email okay. and reflection from the Reverend Dave Meldrum, uh, who says, On the 21st of September 2013, my good friend and member of my church, James, was one of those murdered by members of the Al-Shabaab terrorist group in the attack on the Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi. He was in Kenya on a business trip, taking some time out at the mall to do some shopping. From what we know, he was one of the first to be killed. As a friend and as a minister, I spent much of the 24 hours after the attack sitting with his family here in Cape Town as we waited for news. With other members of the family out of town for a few days on holiday uh, at the first time, I found myself not only consoling and supporting a grieving community, but acting as a media spokesperson for the family until they were able to get back to Cape Town. I conducted the funeral and he was my friend and all the time I was attempting to process my own roller coaster of emotions. I have long been a pacifist, or at least very close to that view, but I found, and I speak only for myself, not James's family or the church or anyone else, that experiencing terrorism at such close quarters as we did with James's murder makes a nonsense of such tightly and easily held convictions. I'm still a neo-pacifist, but I hold it much more loosely now. So I went to see Eye in the Sky in full knowledge of the subject matter and that it specifically focused on Al-Shabaab and Kenya with trepidation, but also knowing that I probably needed to see it, and I'm glad that I did. But I would say that not everyone who's been through a situation like we have would find it helpful. It has weaknesses. I'd personally have valued more on the political context because I still don't understand what, politically speaking, led to masked men with guns killing my friend who they'd never met. But what I did find is that the film articulated most of the moral wrestles I found myself with since James's murder. I don't know if politicians and military really do wrestle the way they are portrayed as doing in this film, but I found it helpful to see the dilemma played out. Ultimately, I left the film dis dissatisfied, but I think that's the point, and that's why I found it helpful. The point is that there are no simplistic answers to terrorism, and to pretend that there are is simply naive denial. The way the film portrayed terrorism as making unwilling monsters of us all was real and all too personal for me, and I was left with as many questions as I had before the film started. And that's good because it reassured me that I'm not going mad. Uh, Reverend David Meldrum. 
an interesting reflection. Yeah, I mean, but, but I, thank you, thank you for that email. Which, um, but I think the, the, the this obviously it's deeply personal. But the cinematic point is, which will which plays to that is, there are no. I mean, I haven't seen the film. No, no, sure. It's not neat. This is no. Not, it's this not. Is not a kind of oh, that's there is no kind of resolution. It's not. And I think the thing that impressed me most about it, and you know, particularly saying this after just having heard that very very powerful email, and thank you for sending that, is that. I think the achievement of the film is for a m- mainstream movie. It, it it doesn't offer answers, um, and what it what it absolutely wants is. And there were there were a couple of moments when I thought that it was going to tie things up too neatly, and I was I was impressed that it didn't because it is like I said. Yes, there is a level of melodramatic contrivance in it, but that's because it wants to play to a wide audience. And what it wants to when I when I said. Before that, whilst you're watching it, you you know you sort of on the edge of your seat. But afterwards, you will want to talk about it, and um, I I believe that that's what uh, that that's what that email, that beautifully written email, was saying. And thank you very much for sending that in. Uh, more conventionally, uh, Ellie Kent says, "I was lucky enough to attend a preview of." Uh, Eye in the Sky in the lovely Denby Cinema in Sydney. I wasn't sure what to expect, but from the stellar cast list, I had high hopes and I was not disappointed. For me, Alan Rickman stole the screen. But that may be because I was very aware of his recent passing. I'm a huge fan of his. In Eye in the Sky, Rickman plays an exasperated lieutenant having to deal with squabbling lawyers and politicians with some proper laugh-out-loud moments. Yeah, I mean, that's bizarrely, it is It is important to remember that there is a sort of, uh, sort of satirical side to it um, in that kind of, as I said, in that sort of strange, Dr. Strangelove thing about the, you know, the sort of the craziness of political arguments. And I should have said lieutenant, obviously not lieutenant. <laughs> when it switches back to the terrorist situation, it's all very edge of your seat. Has there ever been so much nail biting over a loaf of bread? As a thought provoking, that's that incidentally. Yes, that's a that's a beautiful observation. As a thrilling, as a thought provoking thriller with funny bits, I would highly recommend. The only bad bit was Aaron Paul and his annoying watery eyes. It's uh, just his eyes. There's nothing he can do about that. There's one more from Robin um, uh, in Sydney. Uh, what a wonderful bit of filmmaking! It easily passed the six laugh test whilst being totally gripping, like properly leaning forward and clutching oneself with mouth agape, dripping, gripping, moving, throat lumps, tears, everything, and a fascinating insight into rules of engagement and military protocol in the drone age. It also beautifully juxtaposed, juxtaposed British and American sensibilities mm-hmm. in such matters, illuminating the deficiencies of both sides. Mm-hmm. A thoroughly entertaining and thought-provoking film, brilliantly cast and acted, that reminds us that the real victim of war is innocence. Very good. And at the at the risk of sounding cheesy, can I just say once again, I'm how wonderful that we have that level of correspondence. We've got about 21 minutes of movie conversation to come. TV movie of the week, first of all. Uh, Nadim uh, Razvi. Thank you, Nadim, uh, for getting in touch. There are some crackers in this list. Nosferatu, my favourite Bond, which is Goldfinger. And the surprising... You said Nosferatu, my favourite Bond. No, I don't remember that being a Bond film. Comma, my favourite yeah. Bond, Goldfinger. Yeah. And the surprisingly good Lust for Life. But I think Mark is going to go for Locke, a single premise, but very well done. James Adamson, Mud will be my choice. Terrific film, an interesting companion piece to the director's latest Midnight Special, which is in cinemas now. Reckon Mark's going to go for Nosferatu. Not the Bond version. John Quigley, <laughs> I'd pick Aliens because it's a classic that manages to completely change genre and still scare everything out of you. Mark will probably pick Nosferatu because it's on film four in the middle of the night and it's by Herzog. Uh, and Stuart Moffat says, I learnt a lot about concrete from Locke. 
Anyway, what are you going to pick? What's our TV movie of the week? I'm going to go for Mud because, you know, we were talking uh, earlier on about Jeff Nichols and this was arguably one of the films at the beginning of the reconnaissance. Uh, when was it? Was it? Which was the film in which you first had the reconnaissance discussion with Matthew McConaughey? It was the... Was uh, it Magic Mike? <clears throat> yeah, it was Magic Mike. Okay, fine. The male stripper film. <laughs> I do believe it was that one. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, well, Mud, I think, is really interesting. It's one of those movies in which, you know, he owes a debt to Whistle Down the Wind and Stand By Me and, you know, to some extent, sort of Kings of Summer. But it's the story of these two boys and an island hideout and uh, Matthew McConaughey is this kind of eponymous drifter. And it's, I mean, I, I liked it very much. It was one of those movies in which, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's got some terrific performances in it and it has a real sort of sense of location and you can smell the atmosphere. It's one of those movies in which you can really sort of breathe in the atmosphere. And I think it, it would be an interesting thing if you, you know, if you watch that and then you do Midnight Special, it'd be a good, good double bill. So I'm going to go for that. What is to be done, by the way? What, what is to be done? What is to be done? I don't like the way this is going. Yeah, go on. A little bit Lenin, I know, but what is to be done about a well civilization? Done, Thank you. His poll. You're a little bit Lenin and I'm a little bit rock and roll. <laughs> I'm a little bit Lenin. What is to be done about I'm a, a civilization? I'm a little bit Trotsky roll. About a civilization <laughs> that is prepared to consider discussing yes. and glorifying the use of telephones in a cinema, which is, uh, of course, yeah. the number one thing which people have been getting in touch uh, about. Yeah. And I wonder if you, maybe, you have a, You have a controversial position on well, this. I wonder if it Don't could you, conceivably be a good thing Go if... On. Let me just back away from the microphone while you explain whilst allowing people to talk on the phones, on their phones in cinemas is conceivably well, hear, a good thing. Hear what Here we go. Is. Here we go. This is like the RCP, right? It's like the RCP who would always, the, Revolution, you, the Revolutionary Communist thank Party, thank you, um, the People's Workers Popular Front of Judea, who would always, from an extreme left-wing point of view, find a way of arguing completely the opposite. Hear my theory. Go on. Yeah, this is right. I'm, I'm, this is like the if next step. Go on. In a multiplex. Preparing for power. Go ahead. In a multiplex, mm -hmm. if there are a number of screens on offer, yes. you say, mm -hmm. if you want to use your phone, you go in screen 10. Yep. Everywhere else, it's banned. Yeah, but you're assuming. Check your phones in at the door, and we assume by you going into screen three, four, five, and so on, that you agree not to use your phone. Yeah, and if there, you want and to be so brainless as to use your phone, fine, go ahead. And guess what? We're not going to turn the lights down either. How about that? Okay. The problem is that you, you said we assume. So what you're assuming is that all those people who right now shouldn't be using their phones in cinemas but do anyway, when told... You can either go in a screening in which everyone is going to be doing that, or you can go in the one in which you're not allowed to do it. We'll go, oh, then I won't do it in the one which I don't believe that for a minute. I believe that, that they will, they'll go, I don't want to sit in a, in a room full of other people texting, and then they'll go into the ordinary screens and do it. And here's a, a more culturally important point. If you set a precedent of saying that it is okay to do this, then you are essentially opening the floodgates to the end of the world. I'm controlling it. It's like pest control. Round well, that's a, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a good analogy, but it isn't. I think what you have to... I mean, the, the thing that bothers me is that the guy who was the head of the cinema chain was quoted as saying, um, you cannot tell a 22-year-old to turn off their phone. Yes, you can. You go, you go like this. Turn off your phone! It's really simple. How does that work with your kids? Well, it depends on how particularly strict about it I'm feeling. Which is always pretty strict. Anyway, yeah. what... Do you, do you have phones at the dinner table? 
Well, it's an ongoing conversation. And there we are. Would, that, it, were so would that it were so simple? But you're dithering, okay? But no, you just have no dithering. You have, it is a throw-outable offence, right? That's what you, and you, and, 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 but to say we want to get millennials in, which incidentally is a word which is... Doesn't exist. Stop yeah, it. it's up there with I reached out to, which is like, what? You mean you rang? I sent an email to, I reached out to so-and-so. We reached out. What does that even mean? We reached out. Who reaches out? What? Are they in a... Millennials reach out. Millennials reach out reach for out, their I'll phone. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I think that's... And that's again, it. no. Anyway, quarter to four, what do you want to tell us about this? Oh, let's do a uh, fan, uh, which is the uh, new, movie, new movie with uh, uh, Shah Rukh Khan, a Bollywood legend playing not one but two roles, playing a screen legend called Aryan Khanna and also playing uh, a young fan due to the miracle of uh, terrific makeup work by Greg Canham, who worked on things like Benjamin Button. I mean, he's been around for ages and a very, very interesting makeup effects guy. So the story is there is a young fan who has won a talent competition three years running by impersonating his uh, idol. Uh, he decides to go to Mumbai to meet him because he's convinced that, he, you know, he considers himself to be the junior version of the star. Inevitably, when he gets to the star's house where there's a huge crowd of people outside, he doesn't immediately gain access and be welcomed in with open arms by his idol. In fact, that doesn't happen at all. So what he then decides to do is, in order to gain the attention of uh, his idol, he will do something borderline criminal, actually criminal, to uh, to another actor who is who has been taunting his star and then sends him a video saying, look what I've done, I'm on your side. At this point, of course, the star decides that this is really not a good state, you know, state to be in whatsoever. He ends up uh, basically shunning him and inevitably, as will happen in this story, the, the shunned fan then decides that actually if he's not going to be loved, if he's not going to be adored, then what he's going to do is, is to become destructive. Now, it's a story that you, you know, you've heard lots of times before. I mean, you could, some people have cited Misery. I think there's a stronger comparison with uh, the themes of King of Comedy. What I like about the film is this. Firstly, um, it's a rip-roaring watch. I mean, yes, there's a certain element of preposterousness in it, but actually that preposterousness is kept, I think, pretty well. I mean, the, you know, the score is cranked up all the time. Everything sort of turned up to 11. But it, I, thought it was, I thought what it did was play Laid off that, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, the two sides of the same coin, you know, two different faces of the same sort of personality, the young, the old. I thought it did that really well. And I thought the central performance was the central dual performances were done well enough that you actually do completely believe in these as being two separate characters. Secondly, I think, I mean, I like the idea. I always like that thing about the darker side of fandom. And there are a couple of moments in the movie in which it does some very nice sort of insightful uh things about the way in which celebrities behave, the way in which fan culture enables celebrities to live in a certain bubble and actually sort of, you know, picking away at the edges of that. And uh, I like anything which kind of, which pierces that bubble of fame and what it actually means. It has some terrific action sequences in it. There's a rooftop chase, which is up there with kind of, you know, the, the Bond and Bourne chases. And most importantly, all the time I was watching it, I thought, with you know, for all its overcrankedness, it's actually keeping me interested in the, the interpersonal dynamic between these two characters because it's a terrific central performance or terrific central performance is. It's a good idea for a script. It's kind of globe trotting in its um, 
in the in its location. So it goes Delhi, Mumbai, and then London and Dubrovnik. And so it's you know you get a real sort of travelogue sense of having seen the world. You remember when you used to go to the cinema because it was a way of travelling around the world. Well, you get that with this. But you also get, you know, exciting action sequences, good psychological thrills, some sort of satirical underpinning, which did, as I said before, reminded me of King of Comedy. And you come out at the end of it thinking that was a really good, enjoyable, ripping, breathtaking romp with a terrific central performance. What's it called again? It's called Fan, which kind of does what it says on the tin. Uh, this from Peter Taylor Whiffin. Dear Doctors, about the PG rating for Jungle Book, which oh, yes. we were discussing earlier. John Favreau was our guest. If you missed it, uh, it'll be uh, on the podcast, so yes. you can listen again. My kids, says Peter, are 11 and 7 and are quite robust, having enjoyed a range of PG movies and are not easily phased. But the CGI tiger makes me think of the only PG disaster we had, which was Life of Pi. Right. Way too brutal to be in the same classification as, say, Paddington. Dreadful judgment by the BBFC. Pi should absolutely have been a 12. My kids are not afraid of tigers as a rule, so... When you say pie, yeah, you're fine, fine. As in Life of Pi. Yeah, yeah. Can, Sorry, because so, there's a movie called Pi, which okay. I was just confused me, yeah. No, this is Life of Pi. Yeah, yeah. So fine. can you tell me if Jungle Book is in any way likely to have the same terrifying effect as Pi? Thank you, dears. Peter Taylor Whiffin. I said yes, probably. Did you, did you like Life of Pi? Yes, I did. Did you... I mean, I did. I, I really liked it. Again, I really wasn't expecting to. Did you believe in? It's Richard Parker, isn't it? Is the name of the, of the, of the tiger. Is that? That sounds about right. That's right. Didn't he run Capital Radio? For he a... did, and then he was in the boat. That's right. And then he... <laughs> did you believe in in the, the, the tiger as a character in Life? Of Pi? Yes, I think I did. See, that was I thought the real miracle of Life of Pi was that you end up believing. I'd read the book, so I sort of came. Well, up I with hadn't. a certain amount of baggage. I hadn't. I read the book after seeing the film, and I was more impressed having read the book because when you read the book, you go. Oh, well, that's completely unfilmable. It's so absolutely if, impossible to film that. If you found the tiger in Pi, mm -hmm. Richard Park... If Richard Park. Is it you, Richard Parker or Richard Park? Park? Richard Park, yeah. sorry, sorry. If you found, if you found that uh, quite tough, yes. would you find Shere Khan quite tough? No, because it's, it's a different type of thing. The, the, I think the, the tiger in Life of Pi is more threatening because the tiger in Life of Pi is not an anthropomorphised animal that talks. It's a tiger. And... It's the only other animal in the boat, isn't it? For a lot a of the film, time. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there are other things at the beginning, but I think, I, I think Life of Pi is a tougher ask than Jungle Book, don't you? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but but I mean, I, the, my main memory of, of Life of Pi is just being absolutely swept away by the fact that I was watching this thing with these, you know, I, which I knew was CG animation, but kept thinking that that's not that must be a real tiger. I know there was actually some tiger. Anyway, shots. look at the uh, look at the BBFC. Uh, guidelines and what they're saying on their app, which is always very interesting. Plus, John Favreau says, look at the trailer, which, if anything, is darker than the actual movie. Yeah. So if your kids are fine with the trailer, there you go. You can probably rest easy and, yes. go, and, and go and see the movie. What else do we see? Let's do criminal, shall we? Is that... Uh, do, I have any, <laughs> do I have any say in the matter? No. OK, so you remember uh, there was that film last year called Selfless, in which Ben Kingsley had his brain splanted or his soul, splanted into the body of Ryan Reynolds because he was on the way out and they needed to do it. So he said, Ryan Reynolds is an empty vessel. <laughs> no. <laughs> into which your soul can be splanted. So he is. And then, surprisingly enough, he he finds out that he's not an empty vessel at all. It's, that's actually sort of like, um, like, like that film's set. What's he full of then? Well, he's full of Ryan Reynolds. Is he really? <laughs> he is. That, who knew there was so much? And people filled their own sins. Yeah. Well, now, OK, now we have criminals. So the story is at the beginning, Ryan Reynolds is splanted into the body of Kevin Costner, who's the empty vessel. That Kevin challenge. Kevin Costner's empty vesselden 
is explained away by the fact that he is a hardened crim who does not feel any emotions. Neither he doesn't know good nor bad nor nothing. He's just terribly hard. And uh, they need to because Ryan Reynolds knows all this stuff. It's kind of there's a nuclear thing. There's a character. There's a Spanish anarchist and a bloke called the Dutchman. Really, and uh, they have to get an end well. No, they have to get Ryan Reynolds' stuff and his brain into Kevin Costner's empty brain, and they get it into Kevin Costner's empty brain. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones is the surgeon who does the operation, and Gary Oldman is the CIA chief who decides very early on, having woken Kevin up from his brain brain splanting operation, that he'll start shouting at the end of this clip and then won't stop for the rest of the movie. Your name is Bill Pope. I'm sick, Doc. I need some kind of shot. I need something. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. He can't help you. Only you can help him. Your name is Bill Pope. You're an intelligence officer with the CIA. Intelligence? My head. Aspirin is not good for you, but this will help. Billy, we had orders to put a bullet in the Dutchman's head. Right? But you forced oh, the play because you thought you could trust him. You thought you could pay him off. Billy! Where did you put him? Remember! Remember! You got me confused with somebody else. And Gary Oldman spends the rest of the movie doing that. Every line shouted, no matter what. He just does that the whole time. Meanwhile, Kevin Costner goes on the rampage around... Well, you would. You would, wouldn't you? Being shouted at. Yeah, exactly. He goes uh, running around uh, the sites of Merry London, where he quite genuinely meets meets and beats up a bunch of people um, who say... God blimey, that's bang out of order. And no mistake in Mary Poppins. He goes to a kebab shop and he has a kebab and then he gets in a cab with the cab driver virtually says, I'm not going south of the river this time of the night. And um, then they go on the rooftops. Actually, no, they missed a trick there. A bit of chim. They they didn't chim chim and chim action. But yeah, anyway, it's utter rubbish. Uh, and not enjoyable rubbish, as it turns out. It's quite boring. The, some, the best reviews I've read of it, um, you know, the most positive reviews, go, well, it's rubbish, but it's kind of, you know, it's not, it, it, it's entertainingly terrible. No, it's not. It's got Gary Oldman doing the give me the check performance. It's got Tommy Lee Jones looking more saddlebaggy than ever. I'm sure pinching himself between sit going why why what am I why am I here what on earth is this about it's got Kevin Costner on Kevin Costner attempting to uh to portray through the sheer strength of his facial maneuvers the struggle the struggle of a sort of psychotic criminal with Ryan Reynolds in his head hmm. Gal Gadot turns up and basically turns up to go Hi. Oh, does she? Yeah. I might get into One, that. yeah. I know I'm shallow, but... Yeah, shallow is a nice word for what you are. Yeah. Oh, and then there's a cameo... Appearance. What, what word would you use then? Shallow. And then there's a cameo appearance by Piers Morgan as Piers oh, Morgan. No, and, well, we know, we know how movies with Piers Morgan in end up. Yeah. The last one was Entourage. Yep. Okay, is this, <laughs> is this better than Entourage or worse? Oh, yeah, but, you know, I mean, most things in the world What's are better Piers than Entourage. What's Piers Morgan doing in it? Being Piers Morgan. He's like Target, is he? Pardon me? Is he a Target? No. Oh. No, he's Piers Morgan interviewing the Spanish anarchist. Okay. 
This sounds ludicrous. Yeah, is it but, not, no, but not entertainingly ludicrous, oh, okay. just rubbishly ludicrous. I mean, rubbishly, rubbishly, rubbishly ludicrous. I am genuinely, I wrote this line down. I'm not making this up. There is genuinely a bit when a bloke goes, Oi, that's bang out of order. And He actually says that, that line out loud. And it is bang out of order. Is that after Piers' interview? <laughs> well, is that the cabbie? All right. What's that film again? <laughs> It's called Criminal, and it is indeed criminal. Uh, okay, so uh, this is... I'm just trying to work out movie of the week. Hmm. Well, I think I probably know. But anyway... Uh, it's going to be the Gary Oldman shouty give me the check movie, isn't it? Are you done? No, I was going to do Our Little Sister. Well, you do that then. That's a, is that all right? That'd be a nice way to finish. So Our Little Sister, which is the Koreeda uh, Horikazu film, which I like very much. Story is three 20-something sisters living together. Their estranged father dies. They go to the funeral. When they're at the funeral, they meet their 14-year-old half-sister who seems kind of lonely and isolated and they ask her to come and live with her, live with them. And she does. And at first you think that the presence of this sort of new little sister is going to, you know, reopen old wounds. And auntie says, you know, yeah, you, I know she's your sister, but she's also the daughter of the woman who destroyed, you know, your family's life. In fact, she turns out to be a wholeheartedly positive uh, presence. And what the movie then does is it investigates the, the changing relationships between these sisters. It's a film about about sisters, about mothers and daughters, about people coming to terms with the loss of uh, parents. It's about parents not behaving like parents and children having to become parents. And it's all of these things in a really, in a way which is so light of touch and enchanting that actually you could be mistaken for thinking, actually, it's a light film. If you look at the previous work, like, like Father Like Son or, or I Wish, I know there are some reviews which have said, well, it doesn't quite have the substance that I disagree entirely. It, it, it's, it's a peculiar thing that sometimes we think that if a film doesn't have you know, a very sort of dark underbelly, that somehow it is insubstantial. This isn't. This is a beautifully observed film. I love the framings. The framings are all mid and long shot. So you all get two, three, four people in a frame. One time, there are very few close-ups. So it's a film about groups of people. It's a film in which the soundtrack has a sort of plaintive piano score that, to which we then have woodwind and strings used beautifully. It's a film in which there is one absolutely ecstatic sequence of uh, one of the characters on a bike going through a tunnel of pink cherry blossom and it's really genuinely uplifting and moving and watching it you think it's truthful and honest and touching and tender and funny and charming and melancholic and insightful and yet it is all of these things whilst seeming to be almost inconsequential and I think that's a really complicated trick to pull off as i said i know that some people have thought that it's it's somewhat lightweight i don't think it is at all i saw it a few days ago now and it has really stayed with me and i yeah i thought it was utterly enchanting and i mean enchanting in a in a good way not utterly enchanting like you know like in a bad way obviously yeah so uh all things considered movie of the week it's a it's a split decision no it's the jungle book and i have eye in the sky the two of them together it is i have to say it's been a good week 
This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. The podcast will be available soon. There's an edited repeat of the show on 5 Live tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Next week, hello, she's Meryl Streep. Well, jolly good show and well done because, you know, we were, you were suitably refreshed. Yeah, well, it's, it, was, it was funny, but not doing the show for two weeks and then coming back and, you know... Murray Farrell, possibly Farrell, possibly Farrell. Um, Farrell Williams? Yeah. No, Murray. Just wanted to take two minutes out of my unbusy day to congratulate Mark on his review of Criminal, which managed to pass the oh, six sorry. Laugh, okay. the six laugh test within the first 60 seconds. <laughs> the review, that is. Uh, not, not the, the film. Um, so there was a movie that you didn't get to, actually. Yeah. Do you want to get to it? Yeah, so very quickly, there's this film, which I think is officially called The Sweeney Paris. The reason I say I think it's officially called that is because when I saw it, it had the French title Anti-Gang written on the front of it. And for one point, there was a there was a while when it was coming up as Sweeney France. Sweeney France. Uh, but basically, it's... Do you remember the Sweeney movie recently? Yes. The Nick, well, I say recently. A few years back. 2012, whenever it was, yeah. And we had... Uh, Ray Winston came on the programme. Yes, he was up for it. And Plan B. Who wasn't? <laughs> in general. <laughs> you know, can you imagine... Kaufman-esque. Yeah, maybe we could get... Charlie Kaufman, Duke Johnson and Plan B in a room together to do a round table discussion. Discussion. about Anyway, we should book that for when we're off. Yeah. So anyway, this, the Sweeney movie kind of came and went. And now we have the Sweeney movie, Anti-Gang, the Sweeney Paris, um, which is a, a remake of the Sweeney. I mean, this is the thing that everyone was asking for. Everyone, when they saw that film, thought, you know, it's great, but what it really needs to be is in French. So it's not a remake of the TV series? No, it's a remake of the... It's, okay. a, it's technically... I think technically it is a remake of the... I mean, it's basically the same story and the same plot and the same thing. So essentially, it's all that stuff that you saw before, but done in Paris and with, with Jean Reno. And the weird thing about it was, I went into this thinking, you know, it's going to be like... You know, because it's sweet, it's Parisian version of the Sweeney. So we were all sort of uh, going to be. Oh, in fact, it turned out to be not only. I mean, it's not any good, but it's certainly no less fun than watching the original. And the weird thing about it was was that actually, in many ways, I kind of preferred the preferred the genre version because I mean, it's the same. You know, it's all the same riffs, but it's done in French. This is, I think, this is probably passing cinemas very, very briefly. It's not something that's going to be huge. I think it's something which is essentially, in the end, designed for um, for small screen viewing. But and, it, it, and, and no, 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 because I, I quite enjoyed it mm -hmm. i quite enjoy i mean it's rubbish but although you put it next to something like criminal it's better than criminal by quite some distance anyway uh we decided that as a part of the review of the film because you know everybody knows the sweeney because you know the sweeney lines wouldn't it be entertaining to get comedy frenchman nicola to translate into french key sweeney lines not lines from from anti-gang le sweeney paris yes. sweeney france but just sweeney classic sweeney classic sweeney dialogue into french why? Because there's no such thing as a cheap laugh. So we're going to do écouté et répété. This is uh, just like your language. Oh, well done. Écouté et répété. Yeah. So basically, we go Nicolas to go first, and then you can see him work, see if you can work out okay. what it is he's saying, and then I'll provide the translation. Okay, okay. Right. okay. Here's number Enfile one. Enfile ton pantalon. T'es en état d'arrestation. Should we do a cleaner in on that? Do it again. Sorry, because I was talking about it. Okay, here's number one. Enfile ton pantalon. T'es en état d'arrestation. Sounds quite aggressive. He does, he does. He's, it, well, it's pantalon, so it's something to do with trousers. Get your trousers on, your neck. <laughs> Cover them up, dear. That's what <laughs> normally happened. That's, okay. Does so. he do Le Sweeney's doing 90 poor, il a got the word to va? 
they get a gang of villains in an ut up a la Ethro. No, make it too difficult. Here's number two. Fermela. Shut it. <laughs> Fermela. Fermela. Okay, I think that works. Okay. Fermela, at least you've got a good idea what that is. Yeah, go. I guess number three. Écoute-moi bien, petit. On est les souinés. Et on n'a pas encore dîné, là. Parce que tu nous fais attendre. Alors, si tu veux pas qu'on te casse la figure, tu nous dis où t'as mis ces photos. It was something about listen to me, little one, and then I can't. Find uh, and, then it, and then it was, and then it was something about having had his having had his dinner. Uh, we're the Sweeney son, and we haven't had any dinner. You've kept us waiting, so unless you want to kick in, you tell us where those photographs are. <laughs> Wait, sorry, can we hear that again? Can we just go on? Let's hear, let's hear Nicolas's version Écoute of that again. Bien, petit. On est les Sweeney. The Sweeney. On n'a pas encore dîné là, parce que tu nous fais attendre. Alors, si tu veux pas qu'on te casse la figure, tu nous dis où t'as mis ces photos. Yeah, he's really getting into it, isn't he? Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I hope you're, I hope you're picking up there. This is French Sweeney, as it's never been done before. Take it away, Nicolas, number four. Je supporte plus cet endroit. C'est un camp de vacances pour voleurs et types bizarres, hein. On en arrête un, il y a une enflure tirée à quatre épingles d'avocat de Neuilly qui vient tout ruiner avec un vice de procédure. Ensuite, il se tire pour jouer au squash et boire un verre de Porto. Il se fait 30 000 balles par an. Donc nous, on peut à peine se payer hein, 10 jours à Palavas les Flots et une caisse d'occasion. Non, mais je te jure, c'est pas normal tout ça. That was just him reading the back of the, uh, of the bottle of uh, Inimitable, Setter, literally. No, 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 it's not. Okay, what was it? <clears throat> I hate this place. It's a holiday camp for thieves and weirdos. I've taken out all the swearing. <laughs> I hate this place. It's a holiday camp for thieves and weirdos. All the rubbish. You nail a villain and some ponched up pinstripe Hampstead barrister screws it all up like an old fag packet and pops off for a game of squash and a glass of Madeira. He's taken home 30 grand and we take about 10 days in Eastbourne and a second-hand car. It's all wrong, my son. Where's the bit in the thing that he said about Hampstead? He didn't say the word Hampstead. He changed it. He he put Noy and Porto. And oh, I see. So he actually gave it French references. He did. He's, okay, so okay. hopefully you're now fully there's, in the... There's one more. French Sweeney vibe. So you should be word perfect. See if you get this one. Last one. Je vais t'écraser tellement fort qu'il va falloir que tu grimpes pour faire tes lacets. I'm going to come down on you so hard you're going to have to reach up to tie your shoelaces. Shut it. Fermez-la. Say, amusant pour le missus always looks le même, le même whatever it is, le même chose. That was an amuse-bouche. That's what the amuse-bouche. Anyway, all of which, as... What is the rest of that bit? As we prattle on, like forever. In and out are ones with avec les numères dans le nom. You want to put squeeze on the playlist? That, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got it in the headphone. Pardon me? Yeah, you want to put squeeze on the playlist? Yeah, yes, because I love that record. Cool for cats. Cool for... Yeah, France. And now it brings us to our final denouement. Mm-hmm. It's our DVD of the week. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to mess this up. On Angelina Jolie Pitt and Hiroyuki Okiura... Let Dr. Kermode give his thoughts. He's hangman, judge and juror. Yes, that's right. Beta Maxians, it's time for DVD of the week. First of all, Lee Patton says, the true test of a DVD is how many times it'll be watched. Therefore, the correct answer is Star Wars. It was Mark's movie of the week upon its release and it would be nice to think a real crowd pleaser like The Force Awakens could... 
complete the double, but I manage you'll probably go for the survivalist, which was okay, but it wasn't Star Wars. Frank Brown says, having dozed through Star Wars, I guess I'll fork out the dosh to doze through it at my leisure. However, I hope Mark will go for the wonderful Angela Pleasance in Symptoms. Owen Diplock says, it's a tough choice between the survivalist and man with a movie camera for me, although I have a sneaky feeling that Mark will go for The Force Awakens. So what is DVD of the week? I'm going for The Survivalist. I knew you were going to pull that face. I well, just knew you were going to pull that face. I agree with Lee Patton. The true test is how many times it's going to be watched, and the answer for the survivors is like once. Have you watched it once? No. Right, so in that case, go away and watch it once, and then come back and make that judgment. No. I'm very busy. Okay, fine. Have so, to do. my DVD of the week oh, is yeah. The Survivalist. Oh, it's your, your DVD of the week would be what? Uh, Star Wars. Okay. I think The Survivalist is really interesting because it's a kind of stripped-down, low-budget film that I think some people struggle to find in cinemas, which is a shame. It's a a near-future society in which, essentially, everything is reduced to the bare essentials. It's a story which is a a three-hander about... uh, To some extent, it reminded me of... You're not even listening to this. I'm picking up. Don Siegel's The Beguiled. I thought it was uh, really terrifically played, really well-directed, demonstrates just how much you can do if you've got a good idea and uh, you know and a cast working well together I thought it was really exciting and dark yeah, yeah. And uh, but you on the other hand and I like Star Wars I love Star Wars I really enjoyed Star Wars but Survivalist is, is I think the one that needs flagging up people should everyone knows about Star Wars that's true why do we have to talk about Star Wars because everyone knows about it I'm going to tell you about a song now go on uh, this was uh, Ken Bruce introduced me to this tune, and well, I'm only getting the I'm crowbarring this in because it was in Mrs. It was in uh, in the Graduate. Okay. Okay. So therefore, so it, therefore, it ties into my fantastic uh, Radio Two series, celluloid jukebox, pop music, and the movies. Exactly. Right. Thank you. That's why you're doing it. And on the aforementioned uh, Radio Two, Ken Bruce has been playing this uh, a lot, and uh, it, which is interesting because the band are not classic Radio 2 material. They're, okay. called, they're called Disturbed. That's kind of all you need to know. Uh, are they a hardcore punk band? They're hardcore metal. Oh, wow. All right. And they, they there's a standard rule about cover versions. First of all, you have to be very, very sure that you're, you know, you're doing the right thing and okay. you're adding to it. But my big rule is if you don't do a Paul Simon cover because he's kind of done them, right? There's no point in doing a Paul Simon song because... Yeah. It's, the definitive version has been done. Yeah. However, okay. Disturbed from Chicago, most of their output is a little noisier than this. They have done a version of Sounds of Silence. Now, I can only apologise because the rules say we have to talk every 30 seconds. Okay. Which will be really, really annoying. Okay. But no more annoying than the rest of the two hours that you've just been listening to. Okay. So I, you need to know. I think I think this guy sings amazingly. Okay. Let's see what everybody else thinks. Here we go. Oh, 
What do you think of it so far? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm with it so far. Okay. Dreams I walked alone. streets of going to kick off in a bit don't you no I think oh, is he going to kick off well, only slightly okay it reminds me a little bit of mm, mm, mm. yeah crash test dummies yeah yeah a little bit he's going to get angry in a second in the naked light I saw people maybe I prefer it when it was quieter. It's going to get noisier. Is it? Check out the video. It's very Asgard. Is it? Okay. It's very fine. Lord of the Rings. Okay. It also reminds me slightly of that, you know, if I were a carpenter project, when it was like Sonic Youth doing the carpenters, which is incidentally is, is brilliant. Okay. Anyway. But, meanwhile. Well, we're done and we'll, uh, we'll let this run for as long as we can. Here we go. and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.